Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's triumphant return to the world of parahumans. I'm your host and parahuman interviewer, Matt Freeman, and this is new applicant, Scott Daly. Scott, first question. Where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, um, probably, probably talking about Wildbo's books still, I, I think. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> Yes, Matt, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of trauma, hope, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this wonderful book. This week on the podcast, we resume our game of catch-up. We're almost there, Matt, but we're tackling all of Arc 2 of Ward, Flare. And uh, this was... It's, it's funny, Matt, because I think you and I talked off-air last week about how we we really like this book and but we see that the arcs kind of fall into a pretty standard pattern and then immediately after we said that the, here's an arc that kind of throws away that pattern yeah definitely um and and not only that but it, it was substantially harder for me to do my summary simply because of, of how different it was and and i had like i after 30 something episode or you know more than 30 episodes of of doing this kind of thing there are some very very dialogue heavy chapters here that were that were uh extremely intense to try to uh, apply my typical skill set of summarizing to um so so yeah it was it was definitely uh extremely dense and and did not follow the typical uh setup um build up toward a cape fight cape fight and then cool down uh, it was it was not at all like that no no yeah and you know there i think we're going to get to some of our different comments um i think i probably liked the first arc better although i think moment to moment i think some of the stuff in here is really great and i'm really looking forward to talking about some of it and what what we're still kind of in setup mode for the story of the book um and may, maybe we're not maybe i just feel like we are because i'm expecting this to be as long as worm and we actually don't know if that's true or not but we still feel like we're establishing some themes we're establishing conflicts and characters and relationships and we really the the inciting incident of the story seems to have happened in this arc the the second one um but that's just me yeah. guessing yeah i mean i would definitely say we're still in the setup phase we're we're only now in this you know the first the first arc as we said was our put the protagonist in a terrible situation that forces her out of her comfort zone and makes her make choices that she might not normally make and makes her take risks and just gets the ball rolling in general. And now arc two, we're meeting, you know, I think, I think at some point Wildo said that you can read this story without reading Glowworm. So in some sense, we're meeting these, um, these kids for the first time in this, in this arc. So, you know the the narrative is is intru- is bringing us into the world step by step, and, and yeah, I think this is definitely still part of the setup. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that too, and that's one of the things I'm looking at as we go is is thinking about how had I not read Glowworm, how would I have seen this? And I think you're right that that you you could absolutely read this without that information. You know, all the new introduction of the characters we see in the story that were established in Glowworm. Um, are treated as complete introductions. So we're not meeting mm-hmm. Kenzie, the person we met in the prologue. We're meeting Kenzie, the girl. And 
I think that's that's a cool way of doing it. I like it. There's some fun uh, structural things that this that chapters in this arc do that I want to talk about when we get to them. Um, the first one in the very first the very first chapter actually. So I think this is going to be a good conversation as always, and I, I can't wait to get into it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, all right, first a few announcements. Um, so we got some feedback uh, regarding potential different segments of the show, how we could break the show up. We got a lot of advice. Um, in terms of how we can change the f- show format once we switch over to doing the, uh, you know, two or three episodes per week format. And, uh, we've, we've liked all these suggestions and we have a few of them ourselves that we're going to try out. So, so yeah, just, uh, just keeping y'all updated on how the format's going to evolve. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if we're going to see that change next week. Because, like, we are going to be caught up after this week, technically. But next week's podcast will still be almost an arc's worth of chapters. It'll be at least Mm -hmm. seven, possibly eight. Um, And so we're probably not going to do that much change because that's still a lot of stuff to cover in one episode. So you'll you'll really probably see the changes episode after this next one. Yeah. If yeah, that makes sense. Right. I think I said that right. Yeah. 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 I, I think that scans. Um, we got a, a nice comment from Ben Zemo on Reddit. Uh, it says, I really like your point about how role models are, how we calibrate our own identities with regards to Victoria's difficulty in grounding herself without anyone to really guide her experiences with. Do you think this bit about calibration also applies to Taylor as well? Um, and, and that she didn't have any positive role models and often negative ones. I, I think that's really uh, interesting yeah I, I love that yeah and i i agree i think absolutely that applies to taylor and um but i don't know if taylor would have like sought out a role model yeah no i don't think she would have because to her it's hard to have a role model who isn't an authority figure and she she instinctively bucks any authority figures like she she kind of at a certain point she came to admire people like miss militia um but that was, I don't know if she ever really saw Miss Militia as a role model per se. Like she, she was, she's too, um, to her own person to kind of make herself subservient in that particular way. So I think Taylor as a character is like uniquely resistant to letting herself become attached to a role model just because of who she is. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting to think about, though. So thanks for that comment. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to talking about more of your comments once we have the space in the episodes to do them. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, arc 2 of Ward Flare 2.1. Victoria rummages through her kitchen, rather Crystal's kitchen, looking for something while listening to a reporter interview Chevalier on TV. Chevalier is trying to depict the wardens as a force for good and significantly different from the PRT. And and the, here's one of the first threads that we establish here that we're going to pick up on um, later in the chapter. But this this entry part in the arc also reflects a lot of things we were discussing last week about this this idea of the past versus this clean slate future. Um, this time it's a little more outwardly focused, though, Matt. Like this idea of how can you prove to me that you've changed and you're not the same old person. You're not the same old PRT. And Chevalier's argument here is, is a good one. It's like, well, in order to prove that to you, you have to first give me the opportunity to prove that. And uh, if you're not given that opportunity, well, that 
that kind of sucks. Yeah, it's an excellent setup for this whole arc, actually. Uh, th- this this situation we find ourselves in where, or not not even this arc, actually, I would say the whole story up to this point, it's very fitting that, that people are talking about second chances, but saying, well, not, not everyone deserves a second chance. But then it's like, well, how do you determine who deserves a second chance without giving them a second chance? Right, exactly, yeah. And as much as I love Chevalier, and I love Chevalier's argument here, that he, he, he really seems to be coming from this place of real earnestness that, look... We're different now. You got let us let us prove that we're different. Let us prove that things are not going to go the same as they did last time. And well, let's pick that beat up at the end of the arc. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah. So Victoria uh, accidentally tears a drawer out of its casing, um, not because she's using her strength, but because the drawers are just poorly installed, which isn't yet another. Um, um, moment of of showing what this world is like uh this wakes up crystal who comes out and admits that she doesn't own any scissors uh, which is what victoria was looking for (laughs) because she has lasers which makes perfect sense of course of course she doesn't own scissors why would you need scissors if you can make them with your fingers um and this is just a it's a tiny little both both these little beats are tiny little fairly inconsequential moments in the story but i think they are worth highlighting because like you said it reinforces that this this civilization it exists we have houses now we have electricity but it's it's rushed it's it might look good on the outside but it easily breaks down under any kind of pressure hey that's yeah it's kind of like victoria hey yeah hey it's thematic resonance Mm -hmm. on multiple levels i also like that crystal uses her power super casually all the time and i see this as being you know, unusual, and it's because she's one of these new wave capes who doesn't really have a secret identity, so she never really had to be disciplined about when it was and wasn't appropriate to use her power. Absolutely, and it and it contradicts with Victoria, who I'm not going to say resent, but has issues with her power and only seems to use her powers when she absolutely needs to. Yeah, we're starting to get the sense that, uh, you know, w- within this within this arc, actually, she shakes off increasingly shakes off her complete complete resistance to wanting to use it at all um and yeah. gets to a point where she's a bit more comfortable and and uh even goes on a long flight yeah 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 so crystal reiterates that she really wants victoria to be here and doesn't mind that her presence adds to the general clutter yeah which i think is another really smart way of drawing out another trait in our main character like a good way to to explore who your main character is is by reflecting their reactions to other characters traits so so we have crystal who is this person that loves clutter she loves her spaces to feel lived in she wants people to know that someone's living here and victoria really doesn't um and here partially it's because this is a place where she doesn't belong she knows she knows that she doesn't belong in this house she knows that this is temporary and that kind of draws us back to everything that i think this arc is talking about is searching for a place to belong searching for a purpose yeah i like that the characterization of victoria as this super organized and focused person is sort of inferential like we we saw her office we saw her locker everything is everything is in boxes and organized and she's very put off by crystal's way of living no one has ever looked at us and said Victoria is a neat freak, but but we 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 understand how she is very well just through her actions. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. So we jump to Victoria going to interviews. There's a lot of time skips in this chapter and in this arc, by the way. 
uh, time skips, time reversals, very, very interesting structure, mm-hmm. and which I think you were going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we jumped to Victoria doing interviews. Uh, Foresight is the first group she goes to. And uh, she admires this group for taking smart, calculated moves and for moving forward. Yeah. And I just like, I really want to talk about these first two interviews broadly before we dive into them specifically. I love this mixture of the mundane with the special. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing here. It's like, we're doing a job interview, but we're doing it with superpowers. Like the questions that are asked of Victoria in this first interview are very standard job interview questions. It's just like, why do you want to work here? Why don't you want to be somewhere else? Um, like showing interest in the fact that you researched the place. Like that's something everyone, any, any counselor counseling you for a job interview would say, make sure you research the place beforehand and let them know that you are aware of what they're doing and that you've researched them. And then like the, where do you see yourself in a year? Where do you see things in a year question? These are very mundane, real life things. And it's mixed. Like it's almost to a level of absurdity just because, you know, they're talking about like entrance into a superpower team. Yeah. Right. It's the, the, the mixture of the costumes with the, businessy type etiquette yeah it's it's pretty fun yeah and this it almost plays as a montage too like you said like the structure of this this chapter is we jump quickly in time between these three interviews it's basically three little vignettes um uh, and then we see and then like basically three failures each time and i think that that helps play it as slightly lighthearted. slight i say slightly because there's a lot of like Underneath all this, there's a lot of real rejection and concern that Victoria feels, but she does not let herself consciously feel that stuff. Yeah, and I think that these rejections are also serving a narrative function that only becomes clear by the end of the arc, and even then isn't necessarily clear unless you make some guesses as to what's going to happen next. But basically we're seeing in three different ways... Three different reasons, essentially, why she's not fit to work with these teams, because Victoria's a bit messed up right now. And, uh, uh, you know, there's it's a bit of a minefield. And and uh, when she finds people who she can get get along with, it's 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 emphasized how unique and special that is, because she has not succeeded in finding people to get along with yet. Yeah. If only she could head to the therapy session of the misfit toys. Yep, exactly. So uh, this first interview with foresight the two capes interviewing her have to tell her no because the two thinkers in the room have done a read on her and first of all found her to be hard to get a read on but the things that they can get a read on are already bad enough um so despite the fact that the two interviewing her actually like her they have to reject her um and this rejection is only mildly crushing yeah only mildly so much so that she says as she walks out of the room i wonder what effervescent and relay would be reporting about my emotional state as i left um it it wouldn't be good yeah she's yeah i think this one really hurts and it's i think it really hurts not just that she's not getting on the team but this idea that someone else is aware of how just close to the surface a lot of her issues are like she's good at masking her emotion but they're still able to pick up on a whole bunch of shit that's not being masked. And I think that just the idea of that is uncomfortable for Victoria as well. Yeah. And you know, this brings to mind, this isn't the first time we've seen her rejected because in the prologues we saw her get rejected from graduate school. Um, and it's interesting because this was a character who was super confident, 
knew where she was, knew what her place was in the world. People, you know, they wanted her on the wards. She had all kinds of options. Then her life gets ruined. Then Golden Morning. And now all the doors are shutting in her face. Yep. And uh, that's, yeah, kind of kind of showing us where we are with this character. So next she visits Auger. Uh, Lark, the cape with Auger, briefly touches her back to guide her down the hall, which uh, sparks off her aversion and puts her in a pretty bad mood. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, <laughs> Victoria aside, touching someone on the small of their back during an interview when you've just met them, eh, don't do that. <laughs> don't do yeah. that. Um, and of course, you this this compounds the issue because Victoria has extreme issues with physical contact. And I think that's something that we repeat. Physical contact is something we repeat a lot throughout this arc. Um, it's not all bad here. There's a lot of very positive physical contact. And because Victoria is so aware of that kind of things, uh, her narration always points it out. We always know when she's touching someone, when she's shaking someone's hand, when someone's touching her face, when she's hugging. She's very conscious of all her contact. So it, it draws it out to our attention as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. So the capes uh, talk about, uh, sorry, I mean, uh, um, Lark then goes on to talk about the idea of capes having a brand and how Victoria is conscious of the need to have a brand due to her history with her family and with the PRT. Yeah. And it becomes very, very quickly clear that, that to the, to Azur, um, is that how you pronounce them? Uh, Auser. It, it has a U, so I was saying Auser. 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 I, I okay. To Auser, branding is everything. And I really appreciate the details that Wildbo puts in here that, that build this image before it's it's even kind of mentioned to you. Lark, Lark mentions that he has a collection of cape cards hanging out in his office um, and that Victoria is one of them. Capes, uh, it, it's like a hint that capes aren't people to him. They're just like these cards. They're, they're collectible things to improve the overall look of the collection. And then there's this really wonderful beat that I really liked. It's one of those things that when you're re when you're going through to analyze on your second time, it just jumps out at you because there's this line where they've got to their, her office and, or to, uh, sorry, to, to Lark's office. And Victoria says, I took a seat opposite of the glass top desk while he closed his door. He undid the button in his suit jacket before sitting down. Now, writing, is purposeful, right? Everything in writing has purpose and intent. There's a reason why the text decided to show us that a, a mundane act, action like undoing the button on your suit jacket before sitting down. Now, this is something that you're supposed to do. This is a very normal thing to do. Anyone out there that has worn suits knows that that when you sit down, you're supposed to unbutton your jacket because else it gets all bunched up and terrible. But why did we point this detail out? Why is this shown to us in this moment? Um, and I think that's really interesting because it's going to reinforce this idea that of image and, and properness and, and this guy is primp and proper and, and image and looks are so important to him that he's going to follow decorum in every way. Right. Yeah. I think the glass top desk also underlines that point where it's, it's, it's this image of everything being, um, essentially four appearances. I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe this is wrong, but I think of glass top desks as only being used like in places where you're not really going to be using that desk too much. Yeah. They're not functional um, at all. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, basically the, the text is just pointing out to us that 
he's um, the type of person who is mindful of these details. Yeah. 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 I think that's really great. I think it's, it's wonderful attention to detail and it's the type of stuff that I don't know if you'll consciously pick up on, but it all just kind of subconsciously builds an image for you in, in your head as you read. I think that's yeah, really no, cool. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I think this is one of those things that is supposed to be subconscious. Like, like it's, you're not, you're not supposed to notice this line. It's just supposed to help paint this picture of, of the character. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, so he goes on and he talks about uh, turns, as in perception turns, which is a, actually a concept that I hadn't heard of before by that name. But he basically, this this idea that um, that when it comes to PR, what you want to track is is the events that cause changes in perception. And he points out that Victoria's family um, and her own prior cape identity uh, don't have a lot of cachet brand-wise. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a lot of negative turns there's a lot there's a lot of baggage uh, and eventually he gets around to saying what we re- what we really want is the human angle something where we could have an attractive young lady like yourself in the photo op or your sister no i said her and the right person in a photograph if you two paired up Osher could make you big um and then she basically storms out at this point yeah i'm, I'm totally shocked that that line of questioning did not go over well with victoria <laughs> totally yeah. totally shocked it's also uh, i i found it hilariously presumptuous that he's like we could make you big and like his group is not that impressive yeah there so. are only five capes so far they've got right. they've got delusions of grandeur very clearly yeah and, i mean and, i think know. i think the fact that he's wearing a, a suit costume is part of that yeah i mean if anything if they got panacea then they would be writing panacea's coattails yeah I agree. So, yeah. The yeah. thing that I think is cool about this again is once again, we see our uh, de-escalating protagonist who does not get into a shouting match, does not lose her shit. She just gets up and leaves. Yep. Yeah. Um, and she, she, yeah, she impressively keeps her cool through all of almost all of the events in this chapter. There's maybe only one part where I think she kind of, loses control you know last last arc we were talking about um her losing losing control and kind of not living up to the to the warrior monk version of herself that she wanted to uh in, in this in this arc i think there are actually i think she actually holds it together better um with with maybe maybe one exception which i'll point out what i'm talking about when we get there mm-hmm. um so, so next she visits with the attendant uh, which are actively monitoring the portal while she's kind of walking around interviewing them. Yeah, and this is such a great contrast, right? It, the first, we had this group-style interview with with thinkers reading you as you interview. And the second, it was this super formal marketing, branding interview. And then we start this final one with something different. They're in the field. He, she meets them in the field. They're working. They're doing. And, she, and I like the detail here that she's greeted by her interviewer with, once again, Victoria points out, contact so he says or she says specifically that he didn't shake my hand but instead reach out reached out to clasp my wrist i clasped his and the clasping of the wrist is a lot less formal of a handshake right it's still contact it's still touching but it's a different from that formal handshake that victoria got in her first interview is and and the extremely inappropriate touching that she got in the second one this this kind of handshake is more familiar and more equal like they're they're comrades they're on the same level that kind of respectful handshake and i think that sets the tone for this pretty good 
Yeah, it's like a handshake between warriors, and, and you're actually primed to be most optimistic about this one. Uh, the, the first two, you know, you, you kind of knew the first one wasn't going to work out immediately. The second one, she had a bad vibe pretty quickly. This one, you've got this cool guy, does the wrist handshake, um, and, and, and she likes him. He, the, the guy's name is, uh, Worrell, and she and Worrell are very low-key flirtatious, and Victoria admits to herself that he's, he's attractive, but she's not up for pursuing a relationship at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, the the three three bears right um goldilocks it's like mm-hmm. the first one was not right the second one was first one was too thinkery <laughs> second yeah. one was too markety and this is just right and uh of course that doesn't go well but yeah um i love this little little flirtation between them because obviously victoria's got a lot of shit to work out before she starts doing anything remotely related to dating a relationship like with another human being but I like that we get to kind of get the insight in the type of guy Victoria likes. Like she describes him as preppy. He's got this large white smile that she she notes multiple times. Um, it reminds us that Victoria was basically like the popular girl in school, right? She was the cheerleader type. And this guy kind of resembles that quarterback type. So it's like this reminder of, of who she is and, and the type of people she's attracted to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we're, I, I don't know, I, I think at this point I was hoping that this was going to work out for her. Um, I was yeah. kind of caught up in it. I'm like, yeah, which, which team is she going to get with? These yeah. guys, these guys seem good. Um, so she looks over the other tapes, the other capes on the team. Um, she notes a, a mech tinker, um, and then a couple others, a guy on a long pole, um, and decides to go talk to one of them, but then she gets sidetracked when she eavesdrops on a conversation. And then prize her busybody nose into the conversation. So some uh, some Canaanites, uh, that is to say, some people from the settlement of Canaan are trying to recruit newcomers at the portal, and she takes issue with this. Yeah, this almost really frustrated me because w- when she w- was interrupted, she was heading over to talk with the person with the moons all over their costume, and I was like, Moon Song. Is, are we going to learn if she's really the the bigot that, that we thought? No. No, sorry. Not yet. No. Um, yeah, so we learned a little bit about the Fallen here. So we get a little, a little refresher, and, and we, we didn't know that much about them really in the first place, other than they were an Inbringer cult, and we, know, we knew Valefor and Eligos, the pair who tried to stake a claim in Brockton Bay. Um, but now we're told that apparently there are three family branches of the Fallen, there's the ultra-religious ones, the McVeighs, um, the kidnapper ones, the Mathers, and the jackasses, the, the Crowleys. Um, I just love, I love these names because they all have terrible connotations. They do. They do. <laughs> they do. It's, it's really, it's really smart. Um, yeah. It's subtle. Like, it's, it's really subtle, but yeah, it's well done. And, mm-hmm. like... I find this really interesting and I find this really thematically interesting as well because you have the fallen. They basically existed as as they say themselves as doomsday prophets. They were the ones telling everyone that the world was going to end and they were right. <laughs> the world ended and now it's future now. It's post end of the world. So they're possibly trying to rebrand who they are and and it's pretty explicit here that they're not being completely honest that they are there's some shady stuff going on here, but Victoria doesn't like these people. 
and with fair reason that they, they they really sucked they hurt people we saw what they were trying to do in Brockton Bay back in Worm but we we jump back to the beginning of the chapter and we talk and we see with with Chevalier sitting on TV telling people trust us we're not that old organization anymore we have changed let us prove it to you and and is generally frustrated by the public's attempts to to prejudge them and is that not what's kind of happening here victoria does not like the fallen and has decided that despite what they say here they must be lying they must be false and they they must not be trusted and they don't deserve that second chance yeah it is really interesting it's almost like she's she's put this in the the bin of of people who who don't deserve a second chance um and her criterion seems to be um i I don't know if we're i don't know if i'm being entirely fair to her here but it seems to just be that her her family doesn't like them um they're they're bad guys and you know they they don't deserve a second chance That, that being said i think the situation definitely suggests that they're sort of poaching vulnerable people and and trying to take advantage of them and 99 percent sure that she's right about this no i i think you're absolutely right and that's something i don't want to misconstrue that i am not defending the fallen at all um i am just saying it is very interesting and i think we will see this again in the next chapter uh victoria making decisions on who is and is not worthy of this second chance stuff and that's interesting and that's that's a a, a viewpoint into her character and her her perspective on these things mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so she makes a big stink here, uh, telling this this couple um, about the Fallen's dirty laundry. More and more Fallen recruiters start coming out of the woodwork, and Victoria finally lets herself be pulled away by the moon-covered cape after she's satisfied that she's made a difference. Of course, this is after the, the moon cape has been tugging on her and telling her to, to leave them alone for some time. Um, so th- this is actually the moment when I was saying she might have lost control a bit, because... I'm not convinced that this was a calculated move on her part since she pretty much torpedoes her own chances with this team for yeah. questionable gain. No, I completely agree. That's that's absolutely what she does. Like this seemed to be the right fit and she blew it. And I think we learn in the the second chapter there might be other reasons why she was kind of okay with blowing it or maybe that's just rationalization on her part. Not totally sure, but um yeah she she sacrificed her spot on this team and 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 you're right this is this is victoria escalating a situation she did not walk away from the situation she escalated it she kept going she kept pushing and i like this image because what happens what happens when victoria escalates the situation what happens when victoria doesn't back down doesn't walk away um at first at least the result of the escalation is more bad guys come (laughs) They, mm-hmm. they teleport in more bad guys and they just keep coming. Yeah. And that's like metaphorically really fascinating because like that's, that's this whole violence begets more violence escalation begets escalation thing that we saw so much throughout worm that if you escalate a conflict, the other side's just going to escalate right back at you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a very clear uh, metaphorical illustration of that. Um, I want to go a little bit down the rabbit hole of talking about how her, um, her self-sabotage might be deeper than it even looks because like, yeah, I think 
she just got straight up rejected by the first team. The second team she stormed out on because they were asking something of her that she didn't want, which you could call borderline. You could say that she could have sucked it up and just been like, no, thank you. And then continued that conversation. Yeah. This one, and she entirely sabotages and, and it causes you to wonder how much she really wants this. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that I'm extrapolating too much from too little evidence, but she's basically, um, has a, she has a real chance with this group and she, she does throw it away. And it, it's, it's, uh, it at least makes you ask whether there was some part of her that, doesn't want to do this actually i think that's a fair question to ask and i don't know if it's so much doesn't want to do this and possibly more doesn't think she's worthy of it Mm -hmm. um and i think i think it's fair to read that too because like we said this is one instance of her escalating a situation in which we have seen every other time her calmly rationally backed down from these kind of things but here even with prodding from an external source she keeps going and that is a change in her behavior so i think it's fair to to look at that change in behavior and and dive into what might have caused that and i think yeah on some level maybe ensuring that this does not work out for her could be seen as as one of the motivations to to switch behavior in that Mm -hmm. that instance yeah yeah yeah, she she flies up and she she hovers over by the the cape who's sitting on the long pole, um, and he says, uh, "The man, he's the one bringing them in. keeps our keeps the kid close as a shield in case someone catches on. Different kids some days." I nodded. I think every day of going over there and taking him out of the picture, letting him know I know. Um, and I pulled this out just because I, I liked that, even though like it's it's her insubordination basically that gets her you know, kicked out of this, of this interview context. But this guy over here, you have a feeling he agrees with her. You kind of suspect they all kind of agree with her in terms of what should be done about the fallen, but they're all kind of just following orders and their orders are to just leave the fallen alone because it's a, it's a fight they're going to lose. Um, so this kind of says a little bit about how really all, all these capes are on the same page, but Victoria is less willing to follow orders than others. So that that's a different take. I realize I just said like, oh, she did it because she's being self-sabotaging. There's also the lens where she just did it because when she sees something that's not right, she feels compelled to fix it. And that has that's sort of orthogonal to the idea that she's sabotaging herself. It's just like, no, uh, she she literally can't help herself. Yeah, but I don't, I, it, it could be both. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't think both. it's... I don't think it's completely orthogonal. I think it could be a little of column A and a little of column B. Like she does, we very much see she has this this need to interject herself in situations where she sees wrongs being committed. That's absolutely true of her. Um, but I think I still think her continuing to push, not not like it would be one thing to do it the first time if she had done it up until Moonsong came up and said no. Uh, hey, we gotta we gotta stop this. Then I think you we would say, okay, this is just Victoria being Victoria, but I, I think there is something more to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we finish this chapter with her thinking to herself, a dangerous and vulnerable thing to have no place to go, which is sort of talking about the people getting off the train, but is actually, of course, talking about Victoria. Yeah, that's very, very, very thin. Obviously, yeah. she's she's thinking 
directly about herself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So next we move into 2.2. Um, so that was our, that was our setup chapter and put a lot of things in play. So now Victoria goes to visit Fumehood in the hospital, which is an interesting turn. Like, I don't think I would have expected that to be the, the next thing that happens after the interviews chapter. So T- Tempera is helping with the construction at the hospital and ex- escorts Victoria inside. Yeah, without going too much into it, I very much like the idea of the hospital being a building under construction. The, the hospital is the place you go to heal or d- die sometimes, I guess. Um, but but here we see that in this place of healing, the building itself is still being constructed. It's it's not complete yet. You are not healed yet. And and to further this hospitals represent something else to victoria she she says it herself they they represent her time during those two years as as the the blob thing um they represent her past and the hospital right right here is in a state of change on one side of the room there's this complete completed waiting room where people are sitting and it's functioning normally on the other side is this the construction hidden by this opaque plastic hiding the part that is not ready and not finished yet and i just really like that imagery. Yeah, yeah, me too. I agree with all that. So she she walks toward uh, Fume Hood's room with Tempera, and they talk about Victoria's pavement pounding, uh, how the attendant have accepted former Empire 88 members, and Victoria doesn't think that she could work with them anyway, which uh, I, I like I like what you pointed out earlier. So th- they also talk about how Fume Hood isn't really the same type of person as a former Empire 88 member. Because you know you can you can justify working with Fumehood. She's she's um, she's contrite on some level. She's her reasons for being a villain were were, were different. Whereas those Empire eighty eight guys, those guys are obviously unforgivable. Yeah, yeah. I, this is great because, like we mentioned earlier, this feels like a little bit of revisionist history. Suddenly, she's like, "Well, I I couldn't have worked with them anyway, so that's fine." Um, but yeah, I I like, I like that beat about fume hood is not the same as a former empire 88 member. Well, I mean, how do you, how do you know that? Like, Mm -hmm. like at least with the fallen, you're right. We got the idea. They were here recruiting. They were taking vulnerable, weak people and, and trying to recruit them into some sort of indentured servitude arrangement or something. Probably. How do you know that these particular empire 88 people that have joined with the shepherds um, are not truly reformed. Y- you don't like it. Like she really doesn't have any idea. This is, this is her, her previously conceived idea of who these people are. And like, we both know I hate Nazis, Matt. Like I went on a whole rant during the yeah. crusader interlude. It's so on the record. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not me defending these people, I'm just pointing out that she ha- she sat with Fumehood and she had a conversation with Fumehood and really felt like she got to understand Fumehood. So now Fumehood is worthy of sec- of a second chance. Um, but these people that she has not seen, she has not talked to, just because of the organization that they were in prior, they are not. And that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting who who she decides deserves second chances, and and I'm I'm kind of forced to say like i think a lot of her decision making comes down to like well am i supposed to hate them did did new wave were they an enemy of new wave um and she kind of views everything through that 
lens of like, are they against my people? Even though she's not really in, in New Wave at all yeah. anymore, um, that that's how she sees it. And and like you said, it's very easy to imagine a scenario where, for example, say some young, uh, you know, teenage uh, superhero with with new powers decides that they're going to join Empire eighty eight just to collect uh, intel um, for the PRT. <laughs> And is not actually a villain, and and you know then you're gonna hold that against them, really. You're gonna you're not gonna let them have a second chance in that in that completely impossible scenario. Yeah, no, and like they could they could absolutely be scumbags. I don't think that's not what we're not saying. We're just she has no knowledge. She has no way of knowing in this moment, and she's prejudging them anyway. Yeah. So at this point, after we dragged. Uh, attendant a little bit tempera tells victoria that she was offered a position with attendant this is like when you're talking mad shit about the shitty person you know and then the person you're talking to goes that's my that's my boyfriend yeah <laughs> that's always awkward. great awkward yeah um i particularly like this one part though where she's they're talking it's a little bit further on in the conversation but um victoria says when the law or the system fail to outline a process do what seems right when it's not clear what's right, go with the law. When neither is clear, reach out. And that's what she's doing here. She's she's not sure what to do. She doesn't know what to do. So she's just reaching out to people she knows. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. She has some pretty good strategies for getting by in the world. And I like how that's explicated. So they go talk to Fume Hood. And they talk about how they would like to be friends, even though the team is splitting up. Um, Fume Hood doesn't really get the point of that, though. Uh, although Victoria kind of makes a case like, okay, well, the point is you have a network, you kind of, kind of develop a little support network or a little, little networking network and kind of convinces her. So ultimately they do swap numbers. Yeah. And I think this is when we realized that Victoria came to the hospital because everyone else had rejected her. And on some level, I think we see that she was hoping that this group would stay together and even possibly let her have a spot on the team. Maybe I could Mm -hmm. belong here. Like, all those people rejected me. Let's go to these people. Maybe they'll take me. And again, she's disappointed. These guys clearly aren't really a team anymore. And I think it's fun to compare this moment to the the camaraderie that we see amongst the chat room team later on in the arc. That, we that like, these people tried once, done, splitting up. That group can't be talked out of it. And I think it's, it's interesting to, to draw a connection between those two. Yeah, and to your point about Victoria hoping that she could get a point with this team, uh, that's that's what I thought was going to happen. Like that's kind of narratively, I thought, okay, the first arc is setting up uh, these guys, and they're going to be in in bad straits, and Victoria is going to going to join them. And after after failing to get a spot with any of the of the real teams, she's going to get a spot with this plucky team of of misfits, which you know is not correct it's just another another place where she's going to get let down actually yep so uh there's a small small bit here where um where where they're they're basically trying to cheer up fume hood pointing out how much support she's getting and victoria says the cards and flowers might have something to do with how you're the topic of the moment i heard something about that fume hood said indicating crystal clear for me crystal clear volunteered unnecessarily um, which so that comes across as mildly comic in the moment, like oh, Crystal Clear is inept. But on reread, I think it's a clue as to Crystal Clear's inability to perceive human interaction when he's in his crystal state. Um, 
And then he, he admits at this point that he has a job offer from Foresight. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there that, that he it is a clue to what we see at the end of this arc and in his interlude that he just doesn't know what people's faces look like and doesn't know how to read gestures and expressions. And it is funny. I, I, I think the use of the word unnecessarily there, like is what makes it funny. I think like, yeah, from me, crystal clear volunteered unnecessarily, <laughs> right? <laughs> like to draw, like this was totally not needed at all, but yeah, thanks right. guy. You, you can feel the like, wet plop of those words right. s- s- briefly stalling the conversation uh so yeah after the meeting victoria wanders around the hospital sort of doing her victoria lost in thought thing that she does until a nurse speaks to her and then victoria sort of thinks out of the blue to ask about crisis points which are we quickly learn is something involving having a friendly hero cape come talk to kids who just had potentially traumatic experiences yeah, she, she's lost in thought, and that gets her literally lost in the hospital. She gets turned around and lost in the hospital, and she's lost in life. She's She's been rejected everywhere she turned. She can't go back to her family. Um, she, she crystals off doing her own thing, and she still doesn't feel comfortable living with her. She's lost her job. She's interviewed with three teams that we know about. We learn more that she emailed others that just rejected her offhand. Uh, she went to these random people she met yesterday and they they're not even team anymore so she's got nothing and nowhere but she still needs to do something and so she does it she does what a hero does she just simply helps people yeah it's pretty cool yeah so she, she first she looks in on a on a girl who's acting surly and has apparently had a bad day victoria shrugs off the surliness and offers to take her flying in a harness yeah, yeah, this is this is really great. And I love that she is basically in like a borrowed costume that's kind of looks like Legends, like she's wearing a top that kind of looks like Legends costume and the girl calls her fake legend lady, which I think is perfect. But I I I like the idea of the cost the borrowed costume too because it, I think it sets the the idea that while Victoria is doing right here and helping these kids uh, this is a temporary fix to her problems. Just like that costume, it's borrowed. It's temporary. It is not an actual, like, solver of the issue she has, the, of the lost feeling she has. It's just a temporary way to um, make her feel better and take care of some sick kids, too. Yeah, it's clearly a ridiculous costume that is, you know, not not at all um, fitting to her in right. any way. Yeah. Yeah, she... she not fitting in that identity absolutely but uh (laughs) we finally see her i think for the first time get some enjoyment out of her powers and it says a i smile letting the swoop dash all the other thoughts and feelings from my mind vicariously enjoying the experience of flying for the first time of flying at all um (laughs) so so here she's she's taking the girl flying and actually enjoying it yeah, and, and we know how much flying itself is connected to her past and to um, her her memories. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal for her. This is not just her enjoying flying. This is her letting um, some of the issues she has with her own powers and her own body uh, go away a little bit, even if it's only temporary. Yeah. So, yeah, it's implied that Victoria then takes a few other kids flying and then ends up with Juan, who is not well and is tired and really only wants someone to read to him, so she reads him Good Simon. 
Yeah, is is that a, a real book series? What is is that significant somehow? That's a Twig reference. There's a, there's oh. a character who reads a book series called Good Simon and Twig. Cool. Yeah. Guess I'll um, have to so, read that book. Yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Juan falls asleep and then Victoria checks his pulse, an act which she thinks of as paranoid, a label she seems to apply to herself constantly in this arc. She leaves him a, a nice note and then goes to look for the face that peeked in on them. <laughs> peeked in on them while she was reading yeah i think her paranoia is definitely a trait that we're that it seems very clear we're setting up <laughs> as something that's going to be revisited again and again throughout the story that 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 the idea that she is paranoid and that paranoia um seems integral to at least her uh, description of her character and i'm interested to see where that goes in the future yeah i didn't even really read that as paranoid like she she's very eager to call things paranoid that you might just call cautious. I mean, you are in a hospital with a, a sick kid, so right. like you've been reading to the kid. The kid is sick. You're not sure exactly what's wrong with him. You see him passed out. I mean, checking him for a pulse. Like I have an old dog, and when I see my old dog laying there on the bed and it doesn't look like she's moving, I like check for breathing. I do that all the time. I don't think that's being paranoid. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's worthwhile to point out where she's pathologizing her behavior, where her behavior is not actually bad. Yeah, I think, I yeah. think absolutely. So yeah, it turns out that this boy who comes to see her has a friend who just got powers. Victoria is on the case. She first reaches out to Tempera to see if she can put the girl in touch with the wardens, then to Yamada to see if she can keep an eye out for the girl. Tempera mentions that Victoria is needed for some big capey thing that's happening, and Jessica follows up by asking her to lunch and says there's something i'd like to talk to you about yeah so we basically conclude this first chapter um with basically look at how amazing victoria is right because there's there's no other clear signifier in narrative or in life than having a person help sick children <laughs> like like if you, if you spend time having a character help sick children it's obviously to say look this person's really good they're really, really good. They're a solid, decent person. So we finish up this, this, like this continuing issues that Victoria is having by by pointing that out directly. But behind all that, we have Victoria's increasing lostness. <laughs> she helped people today, and that's great. But like we said, it's it's not a place to belong that she's looking for. It's not really what she's looking for. It's not a new identity to hold on to. It's not a new purpose to hold on to. It's part of that. Sure, she can continue to do that, and it makes her feel good, and that's great, but it's not everything. And Jessica's note to her has this tinge of suspense to it, but it also serves, I think, like a, a, a call to action for her. Like, like this is, you're lost, and here maybe is a focus. And I think it ends up being that, yes, and, and we'll see. But first, we've got to do some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we move into 2.3, and Tempera meets Victoria and Sam, which is the boy's name, outside the hospital. Apparently, the citizen labor group, who is responsible for all the all the new construction, is pitching a major fit, even calling in outside help. I'm not sure what that means yet. In response, the peacekeepers are pulling out all the stops, even bringing in Crystal's group, the paramilitary PRTCJ. Oh shit, never mind about that other uh, call to action. This is... <laughs> Quite literally a call to action. Yeah, we got to do this first. Yeah. And all the headlines say war, 
And Victoria decides that she's going to go lend a hand with this emerging situation. Yeah, and I like that she finishes this with, I'd fly even. And I find it interesting that she describes it like this. Um, She's been looking to join a superhero team for the entirety of the arc so far. But still, the idea of using her powers is uncomfortable to her. Like, I'd fly even. Like, this is this is enough of an emergency that it makes it worth flying. And I like that. So, so to her, powers are not a, a daily thing. Powers are an answer to a need. And I find it interesting that the need isn't super specific. Like, it's there could be a war, so I need to hurry and fly to help Crystal. Yes. But also... The need could be as simple as this sick kid needs a pick me up, and I, I like that we're 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 contrasting those two things. Like, I think she is making strides with her dealing with her powers, but she's not there yet. And what is defined as a need to her is is interesting. Yeah, she's she's afflicted with a desire to help people, like she said. Yep. Um, so she first goes to Crystal's apartment and we get a small sense of Victoria's misgivings about Crystal's career path. Basically, the PRDCJ is a paramilitary group without a government body that it's beholden to. Yeah, that's just like a just like a really bad idea, Matt. <laughs> uh, do, do we know anyone that's part of this group besides the two people we meet in this chapter? Um, uh, um I mean, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I think all the people we knew from Worm that were PRT members have gone to the wardens. And yeah, it, yeah, in I fact, so. when I read this originally, I had confused it and I thought the PRTCJ was like a wing of the wardens, which it, it seems to clearly not be here. Um, and I was like, Chevalier, you can't talk about how you're moving on for the PRT if you name your group <laughs> have PRT in it. But I, I do think it's interesting that... that we have this idea of fresh start, new beginnings, and then we have this one group that is still clinging on to that old name. And and that old name has been pretty thoroughly raked through the mud by now, right, Matt? I mean, like, the, the PRT as it stands at the, at the end of the last book and the beginning of this one is not, like, an honored, valued institution anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it's it's unclear even, like, who's asking them to be here, you know? Like he sort of, we're not super uh, clear on what the power structure is, um, and I think that's interesting because because I think you you could be forgiven for assuming that they're just inserting themselves into the situation. Uh, I'm not sure if that's correct actually, but it's it definitely makes them seem like exactly the thing that people don't want to see capes doing. Right. I mean, this is literally what people are afraid of. It's this this military cape organization with no government oversight is like literally what people are terrified is going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So while Victoria rifles through Crystal's old sample costumes, Crystal explains a bit of the situation. Apparently, the refugees from Bet have gotten their feet uh, gotten on their feet pretty quickly, and it can't all be explained by powers. So. Basically, they know a lot of resources have been coming in from other worlds, and something was promised and exchanged, and this conflict seems to be about whatever that is. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that back when we first learned about the existence of other worlds, and we learned there was an Earth Bet and an Earth Aleph, um, we learned about all these laws and rules that were put in place to stave off the idea of an interdimensional war, and now society has crumbled those laws are gone 
And we're seeing already, already, we have the potential for a conflict between worlds. Yeah, it's been a very short time, too, yeah. So we learn a bit about Victoria from the costumes she rejects and why, I think. She's going for a mixture of aesthetics and pragmatics. I, I like this bit where she thinks 14-year-old Glory Girl had learned that, that lesson. It was terminally embarrassing to have a petty criminal watch as you flew over to your lost shoe and put it back on. <laughs> um, so, so like she's she's kind of mixing in her desire to be fashionable with her um, pragmatic knowledge of what makes a good you know costume. So yeah. as she changes into the new costume, she feels vulnerable briefly. The feeling of being undressed reminding her of the helplessness of being exposed in the hospital or the care home. Yeah, and that's just like a healthy reminder, or or rather an unhealthy reminder, just how like barely under the surface all this trauma is. Does she go through this feeling every time she changes clothes? It, very I, possibly. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she does. And it, I mean, it may be worse because this is a, a costume, but yeah, I, I would I would suspect so. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, because we talked about the, the, in the past about being, you know, the two of us have talked about being bad about visualizing things, even, or, or, or even bothering to try to visualize things while reading. I think it's worth pointing out how much detail we get about this costume, the rationale for the inclusion of each part of it, ending with the knowledge that apparently there's now a trend for normal articles of clothing to be worked into cape costumes, which is just a fun setting detail and kind of prompts us to picture these costumes as being different than how we pictured them in Worm. Yeah. On some on some level, um, this is all the thing going on in the background while the characters have an exposition conversation technique, um, but it's not like all this costume talk isn't also accomplishing something. Yeah, I completely agree. Like we've said many times, clothes matter, costumes matter, how we identify ourselves to other people matters. And getting to watch Victoria make those decisions on, on this new identity she's picking up, even if it's only a temporary one, is important. Um, and I, I do really like that detail about normal clothes being tied more into into cape costumes, because... I think it's a reflection of the world and how the world treats and feels about capes. Like capes are not loved and respected and admired in a way that they were before. So um, we d they don't want to call attention to themselves as much. They don't probably shouldn't have these garish, like colorful costumes. They should probably blend in a little more, look more, less parahuman, more human, human, um, and I think that reflects that pretty well. Yeah, I like that. And it's also, like, as usual, Wild Bill kind of makes things do double duty. It also just serves as a realistic settings touch because, you know, people are still getting triggers and capes still need costumes. But the world's infrastructure is just shattered. So, you know, you're, you're going to do the uh, Peter Parker gets his powers and finds a, a red and blue sweatshirt thing. Yeah. You're not necessarily going to have the resources to make the, the badass costume that you would really want. Yeah, I would argue, Matt, this is actually doing triple duty oh, yeah? because a sweatshirt serves as another layer separating Victoria's body from the outside world. Sweatshirts are not like thin clothing. They're 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 heavier. They're bulkier. They don't show a lot of skin. Victoria is wrapping herself up in this thing. Yeah, like that. That was one interesting thing is she chooses the outfit with the cleavage showing and then puts a sweatshirt on over it. Yep. And I, it's it's. She she ends up showing far less skin, um, which I, I think we've definitely hit a, a number of beats of like, and we're not we're not even close to being done with it actually. Of like guys 
guys flirting with her, touching her unsolicited, and and she's and and we've had beats of her being really uncomfortable with her 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 body in many senses, um, and and I think it's you know a bit telling in some way that she accepts this sweatshirt at this yeah. point to to cover up with. Yeah, it is very interesting that she kind of wears ends up wearing like hot pants though. She's wearing very short shorts because that was the best option she had out of all the costumes. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, now Victoria and Lazy Dream fly to the site of the labor conflict. And this moment between them, Lazy Dream and I touched ground. I've missed flying with you, she said. I smiled. My emotions were complicated enough in the moment that I didn't want to say anything. I didn't trust my tone of, vo- of voice or words or, or the words I might choose. Yeah, I I put that in there because I just really liked it. I liked like Laser Dream is great. I think Crystal is a great person and character, but I don't think anyone quite understands what Victoria is going through and what flying means to her. So, uh, yeah, for, for all the times that we point out that she kind of spaces out, even the people who notice who know her well and notice her spacing out don't <laughs> fully get how much of a facade yeah. her togetherness is. One of the things I am noticing, this being my second Wild Bo story now, is he likes to talk about um, voice tone. And one of the things we saw many times was was when Taylor was being particularly overcome with emotion, she was afraid to speak because she was afraid how the tone of her voice would come out. Um, and that's we're seeing this also in Victoria and this idea that, you know, sometimes you lose like sometimes you when you speak you want to maintain a certain tone but your your voice betrays what you're really feeling yeah like right now i would like to speak with the tone of voice of someone who isn't extremely sick um yeah uh so then the next thing that happens is laser dreams commander uh displaying a complete lack of trope awareness says should be quiet tonight uh which dooms everyone yeah, at least Alex isn't here to die again. Yeah. Alec. Fuck, did I say Alex? Oh, no. I'm going to get destroyed. Alec. Oh, no. Sorry, oh, everyone. God. Yeah. <clears throat> so Victoria takes her spot on the defensive line and raises her force field, conscious of the possibility of being shot. At this point, Sprite, the guy standing next to her, segues effortlessly from polite conversation into aggressive sexual innuendo. Uh, I, I just, I think I laughed out loud when like he, he goes <laughs> particularly too far and the woman, and it says the woman standing to the left of Sprite said something that sounded an awful lot like, Oh my God, Sprite. <laughs> um, yeah. So Victoria tells him she's flattered and, and she really does seem to be flattered, even though she's also kind of having triggered, you know, being triggered by it in some ways. Uh, but there are the reservations that the body that he's flattering is a flesh golem made by Panacea, and Victoria isn't really in a place to follow Sprite's lead here. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about this for a little bit, because the first time I read through this, this whole interaction very much rubbed me the wrong way. I found this guy way too forward, way too creepy, and I was totally put off by him. And when I went back and studied it, um, I don't think it, it is as bad as my initial reaction made it seem. I, I, I still do think it's kind of an inappropriate conversation to have. But Victoria does like freely like bat that ball back and forth with him for a little bit. She she does play along for a little bit. It does get her to smile a little bit. 
So it's not completely terrible. So I've I've calmed down a little bit on my initial implication <laughs> of, of of Sprite and and who he is. Um, but it does mess Victoria up a little bit, right? Like she's she's not in the situation to flirt. She's not here to play sexual innuendo, and this conversation does hurt her she specifically says his moment of frankness had brought things home again my tone of voice was audibly different even to myself as i said i'm flattered sprite really so she, this this brings stuff up like it him being so frank reminds her of the, the issues that she's dealing with and ends up causing her pain so you know guys maybe don't like go straight into sexual innuendo with random people, especially like when you're on the job, like when you're working, that's what they're doing right now. They're working. Yeah. Maybe don't do that. Right. They're basically like going to be having to stand together for an indeterminate period of time. Like what if she had just completely shot him down and just had to stand there? Yeah. Yeah. What, what I do think successfully saves Sprite from being a total jackass is the fact that, once Victoria does reject him, once she says, I'm flattered, but I'm not I'm not in the place to do that right now, he listens to her. He backs off. Um, we don't really get to see much more of how that conversation would play off. It's very possible that he would he would not have backed off. He would have found a way back to the same conversation again, but we don't get to see that. So right now it appears that he listened to her. He respected her wishes and backed off. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I don't think the text is prompting us to see him as, you know, being a horrible person. Um, but I, 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 I can see your your read on it just as well. So then, shortcut shows up. Uh, the really cool guy from the first chapter, who's covered in saw blades and stuff. Remember him? Um, yeah. So he doesn't seem to approve of Victoria. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I like. I am shocked that, especially on my first read through, that I was like, "Oh, I'm liking someone less than the creepy innuendo guy." Yeah, yeah. Um, so in in the midst of this uh, interaction, somebody notices a scratching sound, and Victoria realizes that her force field is clawing gouges in the road. So she takes to the sky to stop this, and then impulsively shouts out to the construction workers some some greetings. Yeah, just for some sort of distraction and some sort of excuse for why she just randomly flew up into the air. Right. Yeah, how how terrible is this, Matt? Right? Like, oh my god! Like, just by using her power, like, I think I think it's it's interesting that in in Worm, Taylor's emotions were kind of betrayed by how her bugs acted, and here we kind of see that that Victoria's warrior monkness is betrayed by her force field and like she's agitated and the force field is digging out at the road and that's interesting and i can't believe she has to fly eight feet into the ground to make sure it's high enough that the arms can't reach the ground that's insane yeah yeah the overall this interaction with shortcut is interesting in a number of ways so okay so now we learn that it was shortcut who 86 her application to advance guard and apparently he did it because in his mind, her handling of that first scene in the story with the car accident was some kind of underhanded trickery in, in throwing him under the bus in some way. And then apparently he like went like he, he just kind of goes on and on and just like is, is railing on her and brings up the community center fight, which he had nothing to do with. And it's like this guy has just been like pacing back and forth alone in his apartment, fuming about Victoria for a couple days and and 
now that he has the opportunity, he's just unloading on her. Um, so that's all insane. But what's also interesting is that Victoria's reaction to this is to just kind of tune him out to the extent possible, which is a, a surprising reaction, I think. Yeah, yeah. She basically just explains herself and then just ignores him. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about this for a bit because this made me so mad. This yeah. made me so I, – I went back and I reread that chapter, or at least that portion of that chapter, several times to try to see if there's anything – anything i could find there that could be even accidentally misconstrued as victoria being disrespectful to him and his goal there and i just don't see it like it's it's just not there and i think this is a lesson in in how how your perception of events can color everything because we we have to admit that that we are in victoria's head we are seeing through her perception of the events and he clearly clearly saw something completely different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and he and part of this could just be that he's projecting a little bit like there were people there being mean to him and were being rude to him and she as much as like she disagreed with those people, she didn't need his help. Like they had the situation handled, he was not needed there. So like he's upset about these people doing these things and he projects that onto her a little bit. Um but this is bullshit to to be that vindictive that you torpedo her chance at getting into the group just because you're mad that she slighted you in your perceived world in your head is such bullshit. What a vindictive asshole. Yeah, right. I guess yeah. I guess we're inclined to write this off as just capes being unstable. Could um, be, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and I agree with everything you said about this guy being garbage. But I thought it was was just interesting that she she doesn't she she like stands up for herself a little bit, and then she's just like, "All right, I'm done talking to this guy," and she just kind of like stands there and just weathers it. And yeah. that that's a very remarkable way. Like I don't know if somebody honestly, I'm not even like a cape with trauma, but if someone came up to me and was like, Hey, I have a real problem with you and how you behave the other day, I'd be like, Oh yeah, fuck you. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't <laughs> you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't go well. It wouldn't it wouldn't be like me being all Buddha like um I most mean, likely. So it's just it's it's very it's interesting to see her behave this way. Yeah, I mean I can't not respond to comments on the internet. So like <laughs> There's no way that in real life I couldn't not talk back to a person accusing me of something. So, yeah, yeah. there is. I mean, there are moments where you see Jessica Yamada come through a little bit where you see the the therapy come through. And I think this is one of those moments. Yeah, I agree. So suddenly there's a commotion and Victoria and Laser Dream head to the scene. There's a trigger event in progress, but it's a broken trigger. The number of people apparently getting powers is doubling in steps each step accompanied by a flash of the trigger vision. Oh, shit. Yep, and we segue right into 2.4. The capes all spring into action, trying to contain the broken trigger. In order, The order to evacuate is given, but Victoria heads for the area of the trigger event. She finds some people hemmed in against the building and thinks to herself that this situation is worse than any of the incidents she's faced before, including fighting the Nine and Leviathan, because so many people are throwing themselves into the danger zone rather than fleeing from it as they should. Yeah, people are st- stupid. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. Yeah. I think it's cool that we, I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves, but Victoria takes the time to rationalize out why they would be doing this, and I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So we start to see the horrible, horrible consequences of the power that everyone is getting. It's all variations of, of some kind of matter creation, manipulation or distortion, but it's not protecting its hosts, which is, you know, kind of the hallmark of a broken trigger. We see a man sprout a tree of matter from his mouth, which basically tears him apart from the inside as it does so and kills him. Yes, yes, humans, go run and get tree mouth man powers. <laughs> Do it. The man with the power of tree mouth. The man with the power to sprout a tree and die. <laughs> Yeah, so, so Victoria repeatedly uses her aura to drive people away from danger or to change the minds of people who are trying to head into danger. Uh, still, though, the number a number of youngsters run from her toward the trigger event, probably hoping to get some wacky powers. Victoria gets it. She understands why a person in this situation would would want powers, but she also admits that she hates being ignored. Yeah, um, I really like how this is put, so I, I copy-pasted it in here. Okay. Like, yeah. I, rationally, I knew that. Less rationally, I had a weak point that extended well before the gold morning, well before the hospital stay, well before the slaughterhouse nine, before the bad days against Empire 88, before my trigger even. I'd spent a fair portion of my post-trigger, and especially, especially in the hospital, thinking about it. I couldn't fucking stand being ignored. And I really love this moment. I, I really, I like that Victoria takes the time to have empathy for these people. She really does understand how a scared person forced to live in this world with very little understanding of how powers work would see powers and say, there's the solution to my problems. There, everything that is wrong with me, if I was one of them, if I was a cape, solved. So they see them and they run towards them. I, I It makes sense. And I love that she understands it. But we tie it back to her original trauma. The OG trauma of Victoria, Matt, is that uh-huh. she does not want to be ignored. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, that that particular trauma was only made much worse by her time in the hospital. I know. That's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Almost as if these, like, these powers that people get and the things that happen, like, don't solve the traumas. They just, mm-hmm. like, reinforce them. Uh, I don't know. I still, I still want my power. You know. <laughs> okay. I'm sure it would turn out well for me. Um, yeah, so she chases after these kids, checking to make sure Laser Dream isn't watching, and uses her force field, which is sort of a s- autonomous, semi-cooperative, short-range telekinetic power, I guess, at this point, uh, to lift a car and throw it toward the youngsters, aiming to crush another car in front of them, making a barrier. Yeah, the implications of this are pretty profound. Um, I think it was you that reminded me the other day that telekinesis by itself is a fairly rare power in this world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always limited in some way. And I guess you could say that, you know, you've got Perrion, who's limited to her materials. You've got right. Shatterbird, who's limited to materials. You've got people like Cuff, and you've got, like, Rune. Um, but th- they're all, like, there's usually limits in terms of range or materials. And Victoria has a really strong telekinesis, but a short range. So it's still, though, you you rarely see telekinesis that is, um, I don't know, quite like this. Yeah, yeah. This this is interesting, too, because this is a new, she basically has a new ability now. And, And when forced to, she will use it. But this is really traumatic because this, this new ability she has, this new strength that you can call it, is rooted in her issues, her fear that that she's just still 
this monster. I think she calls it the the wretch, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is very targeted language. Um, her issues with Amy, her issues with her mom, all this stuff is tied up in this thing, and she'll use it when she really has to. But it's so traumatic, and I and I wonder what that says about about like our past trauma, like metaphorically, right? Because th- like we said last week, this blob field, which is what I'm, I'm going to call it now, um, okay. because that's the easiest thing I can come up with is like the perfect metaphorical representation of this ever present nature of trauma, right? Like it's, it's, it's always there. It's always around you. Um, and she uses it here to give her strength to do something she couldn't do before. And that's, mm-hmm. The implications of that are very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's a cool observation. So she uh, she stops all but one of them, and the one remaining guy continues running forward, but when the next trigger flash hits, his head stops in place while his body continues forward, and he's dead on the spot. Another girl nearby has the same problem, um, and, and we see it, it says... The, that basically the power has taken root in her brain. Her corona palentia has been established, but not as a fluid functional thing. It was a nail taking her brain and fixing it to a specific position in reality. So la 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 la. Just gonna skim past this whole part here. Yeah, just um, just in case you forgot, this was a wild bow book. Here's a fucking space brain nail. Yeah, I mean, I this was too painful to summarize actually, but yeah, there's this this girl dies horrifically uh-huh. with, with her brain nailed in, in space and she starts vomiting and choking on her own vomit and, and spasming and Victoria holds her while she dies. Um, and yet Victoria is the one later who, who is, who like is able to, to handle all, all of this horrible mm-hmm. shit. So that's, we're just going to leave that. We're going to get back to that later. <laughs> um, yeah. So she starts saving individual people from the area, even as they fight her her authority grit and leadership really shine through here in these scenes. Right. Yeah. You see her, she's really kind of just born to it. Like she's born to lead. And, and I think it's cool that also in this moment, we see her internal monologue about her trauma, just kind of fading away. She's not talking about how weird it is to fly. She's not thinking about it. She doesn't space off really here. She's just doing. And I really like this one part. There is a a slight pause in the battle and she has time to think. And she says, there was only what needed to be done, the mission that stood front and center. It was difficult to execute effectively, but simple in how Glory Girl, Victoria, the Phantom Wretch, and the capes I was working with could all agree it should be done. And, like, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's alignment. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. So she notices now that the area is becoming smudged and realizes that this is uh, Little V's power. Yay! Little V. Yeah. I had yeah. never seen her called that before. That's adorable. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you can, I mean, you can imagine her calling her little V because yeah. she's big V. Yeah. yeah. And it, I don't think if we ever knew officially that, that Vista had survived gold morning. Um, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't think we saw her die, but yeah, I don't think we saw her die, but I don't think we had, I don't think we saw her in the epilogues either. So Vista's alive still. Yeah. Actually, actually, did she we see her in the epilogues? Yeah, Fuck. yeah, she was in yeah you're now. right. Damn it. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just going to delete this happens. part. Never, it happens. Never happened. Never happened, yep. 
So yeah, she goes into the area that Vista is stretching out to help contain the effect and protect some people from a desperate woman with broken powers, and then she saves some vagrants. And she's, she uses her smarts here, too. She knows Vista, and she knows how Vista's power works, and so she sees the, the places that it's working the least well must be places where there are people. So she uses to both help Vista out and also to save some people, which is cool. Yeah. So when they finally get those people out, a blindfolded thinker cape tells uh, tells them that there are 92 people left in there. Rocket Round, the leader, orders the capes to hold position and see what happens next. The blindfold cape mentions that Victoria did good work. Victoria thinks back on the amorphous fake Edens uh, in the uh, trigger vision and uh, the shape of her phantom self. Yeah, and this is this is when I think all her stuff kind of catches up with her, right? Um, and I think this is a connection that a lot of people made back in Worm. I think you and I made it as well that, that Victoria in her blobby form looks a lot like Fuckster did, right? Uh-huh. And, yeah. and I, it makes you wonder how much of what Amy was doing to Victoria was subtly or unsubtly being manipulated by her shard. Um, but, but the part on this, I like the most that, that we didn't touch on as is, is how, Victoria, in in the middle of connecting this blob field with Fuckster, she remembers Anne, the girl who got brain pinned before. She remembers her dying, but she doesn't just remember her dying. She specifically remembers her touching her face as she died. We we skipped over this because you were uncomfortable with it, but um, <laughs> but she, one hand came up came up to touch the side of my face and my hair clumsily, as if she didn't have to full use of her fingers. One pat. And that's what happened as the girl died. And, and, and as all the battling is dying down and all this stuff is catching up to her and she's thinking about her, her, her deformed nature and how that related to Eden, um, she also starts thinking about that lingering sensation of Anne clinging to me hard, the touch on my face. I didn't know what she had wanted to communicate, a last gesture. And this is like, we've been talking about it, but touch is important. Like human contact is important. And... Here's another instance of someone touching Victoria as she dies and her drawing attention to it. And, and in in this loss uh, where she's like kind of lost and zoned out, that's one of the things she thinks of. Yeah, it's, it's super heartbreaking. Um, and, and I kind of do interpret that, that, that pat on the face as the kind of like, and Anne knows she's dying and she's almost reassuring Victoria right like that it's, it's, okay. it's okay yeah it's yeah. okay which is the saddest thing ever um yeah and then like you said it's it's the touch for humans is indispensable so as much as you know maybe some part of Victoria would prefer just to never be touched and not not have to deal with this problem there's a lot of positive touch that happens in this chapter there's there's uh there's the holding hands with crystal at various times there's there's this there's this touch there's there's victoria holding and as she dies trying to trying to keep her from falling and just to give her comfort um, yeah it's all yeah. it's really powerful stuff yeah that's something we didn't we haven't touched on throughout this whole thing but yeah it it's very clear to us throughout this whole thing that crystal is not taking any of this well mm-hmm. um and she is through much of the worst of this Crystal and Victoria are holding hands, and we we note that Crystal grips 
Victoria's hand tighter in some parts, and and, and Victoria in turn grips Crystal's hand when when particularly bad things are happening. Yeah, although I think overall we get the sense that Victoria is more focused on helping, and and Crystal is maybe more shaken by all this. Yeah, absolutely. I think Victoria's gripping on Crystal's hand is solely for her cousins. Yeah, like not it's not it's not to get strength for her; it's to provide strength to her cousin. Yeah, I think you're right. So her, her reverie is broken only seconds later when Typhlosis, the blindfolded cape, says that only four are left alive. So the the 90 or so people were just killed by their powers in that yeah. short span of what seems like a few seconds. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. And then they when they go in there, they find only one man left standing on a hill, fixed in place like all the others. And I feel like this is some of the strongest writing of all. We have the scene with this man surrounded by dead bodies that copy his movements and origamified materials surrounding him. The dialogue with all the capes pleading to him to, to, to wait, to not do anything, to not move. And then what the guy says about standing on the edge of a, of a well, of a volcano, and he feels like maybe if he jumps in, he'll become part of it. It's all just so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. From a pure like prose writing perspective, this is the highlight of the arc for me. Um, I, I love that once again, we have Typhlosis like slowly counting down the people left. Like we go four and then he's slowly going three, two, one. And then we get to this person and I, I the, the, the image of like these corpses copying his movements and this intellectual choice of whether to live or die, his, his intelligence, his consciousness joining this infinite well and you got to think here that, like, that's, like, if you look back at the purpose of the shards and the, the purpose of the cycle, that's what happened, right? Like, the, the shard would gather knowledge and then returned to its source and share that knowledge and would go on. Now, I don't think, I don't think the, the human brain, I don't think the human side of him is going to join that and live and live as part of that in infinity. But, but this is interesting and it's, it's kind of heartbreaking even for the, the poor little shard <laughs> because there's nothing to rejoin anymore yeah it's gone yeah i mean it is an interesting i I think i think we can i don't know assume on some level that this story is going to involve these broken triggers um yeah i think that's that's very safe to say yeah yeah and and if if, i I like i like how you kind of made it something from the shards point of view because this does let us know a little bit about like okay what what are these shards trying to do now because they're not they're not these purpose-built shards that Scion and Eden sent out to specific people. These are, I think we can assume, these are Scion's shards that were shattered away from him that are, that are now just like groping out, trying to connect with something, just trying to, trying to figure something out and, and failing catastrophically. Yeah. Um, but what are they thinking, you know, to, to the degree that they think at all? And this, this is a clue, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be very interesting to see even the post scion triggers that that have not broken seeing did those people shards force them towards the same kind of um desire for conflict that the the earlier ones did i think that's gonna be very interesting to see yeah no that's a great point and not something i thought of we need to keep track of who are the post post gold morning triggers so that we can so we can um, pay attention to that. that that's great yeah yeah so 10 days later crystal still hasn't really bounced back from this event victoria is in the caretaker role and she's not even really thinking about the fact that she's doing it she's just doing it 
Yeah, yeah. This is, I think this is great. Um, I think this shows, once again, that Victoria is heroic and it, it goes back to like the, the gripping of the hands and how it was kind of laid out very clear that Crystal took this very hard. And we see that, yeah, she has taken this very hard. I think she says that um, she might not even stay with the PRT CJ anymore, that she doesn't know if that's the life she wants anymore after that event. And that's rough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So a bit later, Victoria meets Jessica Yamada at a coffee shop and it's hot out now. Um, and it was, it was cold at the start of the story, which makes me a little bit unsure about how much time has actually passed over the course of this story. Um, but Matt, it says two weeks. It says, it says two weeks. It says two weeks in the story. Two, two weeks after the after the broken trigger. After the broken trigger. Yeah. But, I, but for how, the start of the story, I have no idea. Look, I have. I'm not good at keeping track of things. <laughs> All right. So Jessica says the girl she referred earlier is doing well now, and asks how her interviewing is going. Yeah, I love this this little beat that they talk about regarding managing versus doing good. Um, like th- there's like. Jessica says the girl is managing and Victoria follows up as like, no, but is she doing good? And then when Jessica asks her how she's doing, she says managing and Victoria like spots this right away and kind of can see through Victoria's thin veil of warrior monk. Everything is fine. Attitude um, Mm -hmm. very well because she's she's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So the, the, this this is fun scene though because it's not I mean as as much as they're kind of using these therapeutic techniques on each other it's not therapy it's a two way conversation with Victoria asking how things are going in Jessica Yamada land and Jessica admitting that things were a bit intense on her end too and that she may have made a mistake and she's actually asking Victoria for help here impossible Jessica cannot make mistakes I refuse to accept this yep you're right it's all a thinker ploy <laughs> no but I think this is actually pretty smart of wild Bo to do um jessica yamada is a great character and she's a very popular character and um there is a certain reverie for her as a character and so i think people have built her up as kind of like not even parahuman but like metahuman like she's better yeah. than everyone else and she's perfect and she can't do anything wrong. And and I don't think there's anything in the text that says that. I think that's just kind of fandom and us too. Like it's, I, I did it. I did it. Um, I'm responsible for it as well. But there, there's that, that she's become this large in the life person. So the idea of having what instigates these two groups of people that we met in the prologues and meeting each other is Jessica making a mistake is pretty important, I think, because it, it, it makes her a character, a person again. It, it, it specifically says, no, she's not perfect. No, she's not this great, amazing, wonderful person that always does good and always makes the right choices. No, she can make mistakes. She's a human being. And the mistake that she has made could possibly have huge implications for how the story is going to go from here. Yeah, I do wonder where things are going to go because that's going to reflect back on whether or not this was actually a mistake. Yeah. Which um, I think we're going to have a lot to say about at the end of, uh, the therapy session at least. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the cool thing about Yamada, I think the reason why people like her is she's, she doesn't have superpowers, but she still is extremely, you know, self-sacrificing and just wants to help people. 
and that's you know it's she's one of the only purely admirable characters in the story so yeah that's why and she she's gets ver- and she she's does. very good at her job too yeah she is very good yeah so jessica we move into 2.5 and jessica first clarifies that she's aware that there's an imbalance of power between the two of them because of the nature of their relationship she doesn't want to make victoria feel pressured or like she needs to step forward and she says i've counseled many a junior hero that they needed to learn to pick their battles I have no idea what you mean, I said. I pick my battles, except for the broken trigger last week, the community center, and uh, everything else. <laughs> um, and, and then it continues on later. I also had things I might have said, but I was worried that depending on what she was going to say next, they could be things I'd regret. If her reasons were good, if they were personal, I was so fucking done with regrets. I didn't want to add more, especially any tied to Jessica. Um, so I, I, I like I like that whole bit. Uh, yeah so i think it's kind of adorable that we get victoria like we, we understand victoria's frustration that jessica repeats her round of qualifiers and disclaimers like three times she tells victoria that she's made arrangements to have another dude be her therapist and 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 it, and she just she's giving victoria every possible out and trying to be as professional as possible about it before she finally tells victoria what's up yeah, and th- th- you're right. This is really interesting, and I love. I do like that we see that that, like, she almost talks here. She almost says, <laughs> "Jessica, just stop it. Shut up. Like, yeah. just do it." And yeah, but it, it's her fear of regrets that that stops her. Um, but I want to discuss something you once we get the end of the therapy scenes because I think it is very intentional that we have Yamada here being very careful and stating things like. She very carefully states, I don't want to make another mistake that compounds upon the one that I have already made. And that's an interesting thread that I want to talk to you about at the end of this. Okay. So, yeah, we skip over to the next scene, and Mrs. Yamada is back in her professional mode. And I can't help but notice that uh, Jessica Yamada hates code names, but she has two identities. She has Jessica <laughs> and she has Mrs. Yamada. I mean, I don't... I don't know to what degree she's doing this on purpose. I don't think she thinks of herself this way, but Victoria designates her this way and, and it's there. I mean, she has a professional self and she has a, 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 you know, a normal self. Yeah. And, and for everything that I understand about Jessica Yamada, I think she'd be really annoyed by Victoria's (laughs) comparing that to Cape for civilian name things like really annoyed. I think she'd be like, no, that is not the same thing at all. Yeah. But yeah, I think this is, this is an obviously drawn out com- comparison. Jessica is the person who can ask favors from old friends and, and patients. And Mrs. Yamada is the therapist. There is a, there is a difference there. Yeah. Right. So they're sitting in this room. There's a thunderstorm outside. Victoria is dressed casually. The room is like a classroom with eight chairs in a circle. So we're setting the scene as ominous as shit. <laughs> yeah. The first patient shows up. It's it's a, a young tween, cute. She's dressed fashionably. She's, in fact, dressed so well that Victoria at first assumes there's some doting mother figure who put in the effort. Man, I thought this was supposed to be ominous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is very ominous, Scott. Uh, so this, this girl says, uh, gosh, you're pretty. I was momentarily lost for words. Very direct. Thank you, I said, glancing back at Mrs. Yamada, hoping for a cue. She was focusing on her notes. She briefly met my eyes, but communicated nothing. So, <laughs> so I find that, like, I, I mentioned this just because there's a lot of beats throughout this chapter of 
Victoria looking to Yamada for some kind of lead on how, on like what she's supposed to, how she's supposed to take some of these interactions. Right. And Yamada just never gives her anything. Never. Yeah. Which never. makes it even more like, what is going on here exactly? Yeah. It, uh, I, I like it. So, Especially yeah. because of how the chapter is structured, how we jump back and forth in time. Since yeah. we don't know what's going on at all, mm-hmm. uh, that, that helps reinforce that. Yeah. Yeah. So Kinsey, which is who this is, flatters her and chooses to sit down next to her in this ring of fully open chairs. Uh, Yamada appears concerned at this. <laughs> what was your take on this? I, I didn't know how to read this. Even after finishing the arc, I'm still not sure why that specific thing elicits concern. Yeah, You know, I think there, there's this idea, which is not, isn't definitely not entirely mine, that Kenzie attaches herself to people and gets quite remora like and we don't really know how bad it can be. We do know that her old team is terrified of her and wants nothing to do with her. Um, yeah. And, 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 uh, I, I, it's hard for me to keep straight what you know about her versus what I know about her. That's, that's fair. Um, but, but yeah, there's the, like, I think, I think basically, honestly, like at this point, I think we're just supposed to, I think this is just a note making us a little bit worried about Kinsey. Yeah. Which, which, it, which, which it does. Yeah, yeah, which it absolutely yeah. does, yeah. Yeah. So Kinsey tells her uh, that she was kind of a ward, almost a pre-ward, if such a thing exists, being groomed for watch God, no, watch, Watchdog, the oversight group of the PRT. As Victoria begins to tune in to Kinsey's level of manic intensity, she starts to realize that Kinsey probably did curate her own appearance because that's how much energy she has. Yeah, I think we had heard about Watchdog before with Accords interlude. Isn't that where Accord worked when he was with the PRT? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I don't know if we've ever really like drawn out the implications of that though. Like, who watches the Watchdogs, Matt? Yeah, I know. <laughs> before we move on, can I just say that I know we're supposed to be afraid of Kenzie, and on some level I am, but I also fucking love her. Yeah, <laughs> like, like. There's so many hints as as to the troubled nature of her, but she's so fucking adorable. When she describes the watchdog, she goes, watchdog, grr. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like so, I was just like, aw, yeah. little Kenzie. I think yeah. my favorite Wild Bill character type is character who we're simultaneously deeply afraid of, but also think is adorable. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um yeah, so we flash back to Jessica explaining her problem to Victoria in the coffee shop. So something you wanted to talk about, this interesting structure of the chapter. She runs through her justification of using group therapy to manage the caseload and ease her transition to working with the wardens. So basically she's justifying the group therapy. And um, there's, there's quite a quite a bit here where she contrasts the kind of therapy that Victoria did. It was encounter-driven. Um, this, this is, it was more involved, more simulations, acting and role-playing, confrontation, learning assertiveness as opposed to, say, aggressive behavior or overly passive behavior, engaging with peers. And Victoria says, I didn't really do anything except sit there. And then Yamada says, but you wrote the scripts, you listened to the others, and you visualized ways you wanted the conversations to go. I got the impression it was pretty intense, even when you were a step removed in your participation. Sure, I said. A large part of what I contributed in the, to those sessions and played into my last interaction with my mom. 
So definitely pull this out because this is kind of explicitly saying something that I think we've we've guessed or, or maybe subconsciously known all along that a lot of the algorithms that go into governing Victoria's behavior and making her as effective as we see her, as good at coping as we see her, were all these therapeutic things that she learned how to do in, in therapy in, in the hospital with Yamada. Yeah, therapy works. Yeah. It works. Um, yeah, and I, I like this. Like, I like that Victoria writing the script, she's she's listening to others and visualizing. Like, maybe this, maybe it's not so much she's a natural born leader. Maybe it's this role in this group therapy that drove her to these leadership qualities. Yeah. Maybe there's even a case that, like, it 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 rounded off a lot of the rough edges that glory girl had and and made what would have been sort of like a a brash and and too sure of herself person into a good leader by making her better listener um making her more um self-critical stuff like that yeah so then we we zap back into the therapy room and three more people arrive an unknown boy who turns out to be Tristan and two people she knows. It takes a moment for Victoria to recognize the woman and vice versa. And uh, we see that now Sveta has a body and Weld watches happily as the two women hug and cry. And then so do we. Yep. Matt Sveta has a body now. I know. And she's with Weld. God, it's such a perfect, it's so perfect. Weld even says it's perfect. Yeah. It's it's so great. Like this is beautiful, and the amazing thing is we were never um, we were never shown the Victoria Sveta relationship. Like it was hinted at. Like I, I believe like there were heavy hints that that Yamada was going to attempt to have the two meet each other and interact with each other, but we didn't ever get to see it. But yeah. we we feel it here. Like you feel it in this hug. Like the importance of this hug and what it means for both of these people is so impactful yeah it's it's great um it, it's it's very appropriate to the themes of the story that we would have these two damaged people meeting after having regained sort of i don't know if superficial is the right word but yeah a superficial measure of normalcy enough that they're functional that they're getting by that they're managing as they said earlier um but you know there's still a lot going on with victoria and while sveta really does portray um an image of being someone who is very kind of at peace and moving forward and, and getting better you know she's got she's got a robot body she's not so not you know she's she's very she's a very optimistic person but uh she's still she's still struggling i think right and we also don't get to see inside her head and yeah. see how what her thoughts are like so right right yeah so yeah we learned that sveta's body is prosthetic not even tinker made but very high tech i like this moment where victoria hopes that somebody will tell her if stroking sveta's actual body through her kind of hair is dangerous and remembers that they might assume she has her four filled up <laughs> yeah because why wouldn't you have your force filled up at all times if you're a glory girl, right? Right, right. Yeah. But Victoria doesn't pull away even as she thinks of that. And I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an- another kid shows up. Uh, braces, black t-shirt, cargo pants, wearing headphones. Another tween, Chris. 
Yeah, well, when I when I first was trying to figure out who the hell Curious Cephalopod was and what that was going on with them, I did not imagine just a kid wearing braces. <laughs> That's not what I saw coming at all. Yeah, me neither. I, I almost think there was some um, misleading stuff being thrown around in the chat, but uh, we'll probably find out more later. Yeah. So Weld, Weld expresses how happy he is to see this reunion, and then he departs. Tristan introduces himself and mentions that he has a twin, Byron, who dyes his hair blue in contrast to Tristan's red, I believe. Yeah. Here's where we do this thing, Matt, where we pretend not to already know who and, and exactly where Byron is until yeah. the story reveals it, even though clearly we do because we've read this whole thing. Yeah. No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Tristan talks about how he had previously claimed to be the number one fan in the Weld fan club. Uh, and that he was crushed when Sveta admitted that she was actually his girlfriend. Oh my god, they're dating? Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. That's uh, so amazing. That's perfect. That's... I know. <sighs> I love it. Makes it makes me so happy. I love this. And, and uh, I like... So, so then Kenzie says, she's living with him and they sleep in the same bed and they make each other breakfast. And, and I, I love that it's Kenzie who delivers this because it just... It has to be a tween who delivers this kind of right. like uh, naive description. Yeah, it's so um, it's so wonderfully childish. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's childish in that perfect tween way where like she's fully aware, but she's gonna she's not gonna say the word. She's gonna mask it yeah, with right. other stuff. They yeah. make each other breakfast. Yeah. Right. Um. So and then uh. So another another moment of uh, I collected a tissue from Mrs. Yamada's desk, glancing at her. She seemed pretty unbothered by this so far. And it, yeah, so I, I like that we keep checking in with Jessica. It reminds us that we're supposed to be asking, like like in the background, okay, so what's wrong here? Why did she need Victoria's help? And it's just a nice way of keeping that tension stoked in the background. Yeah. Um and it ties into the fact that we're employing this time jump technique, right? Where we jump back and forth between the coffee meeting and the therapy session. So, so we don't know what's going on. Um, and it's slowly being revealed to us while we're going through the beginning parts of this meeting, why Victoria is even here. And I think that's, that's why the technique works, right? It's like, instead of just skipping the meeting entire the, the coffee meeting entirely to, to keep this a reveal, we jump back and forth. And so we're, we're learning things as we go, but then we jump back and we kind of contextualize the group a little more as we meet more of the people. I think it's very clever, and I, and I think it works very well. Yeah, me too. Now, another kid shows up, a 16 or 17-year-old with ripped up and worn clothing, a bit cut up on his face and very unkempt. It's Rain. Don't you mean up five? Yes, I do. <laughs> um yeah, for for some reason in, in this moment, the fact that he's got like cuts on his face is very curious to me. I'm like, what what have you been up to, Rain? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they talk obliquely about power stuff, and they all agree that they could benefit from a shit's complicated don't ask card. Yeah, that's a it's a great idea. Maybe they should just make Rain's superpower or superhero name complicated because he <laughs> loves to use that word. Yeah, I mean, it would be fair, too, because that would certainly, since he has, like, 15 different powers, it would probably feel complicated yep. <laughs> to fight him. So when Sveta mentions being in the asylum with Victoria, Chris, who hasn't really spoken up till now, immediately jumps on this, asking personal and unpleasant questions. 
Sveta steps in to apologize for accidentally breaching a confidence. And, and uh, Victoria thinks on its own it was something I could handle most of the time, but it might have been a return to the group therapy session, the presence of Sveta and Mrs. Yamada even, and, the possibil- and possibly the fact that I'd had a few reminders and it was harder and harder to surface while it almost felt like Chris was pressing down. So basically, she's she's got that sinking feeling again uh, due to the c- contextual clues, and now she's got Chris here who's making it harder on her. And basically from the outside, looks kind of like Chris asks her this question, and, and then she just kind of spaces out until Yamada steps in and tells him not to pressure her. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very true. And and it's Chris, – Chris was already this mystery for us, right? Like in the prologue – this really weird mystery, and we're seeing him here, still mysterious, but we're painting him in a bad light, like, immediately. Like, he's pushing where he wants. Even after Yamada steps in, and Victoria gives a half-hearted, it's fine, uh, Chris also keeps pushing and keeps questioning her. Yeah. And we get this very interesting description of him, too. It, like... Victoria says something about him bothered me. It wasn't just the slant of his questions or the way they felt like they were pressing at me, but his demeanor and the little things about his appearance. I couldn't put my finger on the messiness of his hair that he has three cowlicks and and with his hair pushed back by the headphones. It looked like like small bald patches were on his head and and how he held his hands. It was like she she is just put completely off by him both in his questioning and just his look. And we get no answer to any of this yet, at least, but we are, we are very put off by Chris as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it reminds me of this, the, the mistake that I made in the, in the glowworm chapter where I accidentally said that Kenzie described, um, Tristan as being like threatening over, over the internet Actually, what she described, she described Chris as being threatening over the internet. Um, yeah, so and in person. And in person, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, right. So yeah, Yamada then steps in and gives the opening remarks, framing the therapy session, um, what it's about, what, what her role is. And then the final member shows up. Long white hair, pale irises, a black strappy dress. Kinsey mischievously calls her boss when she comes in. It's Ashley. Um, so now that everyone is here... Um, before we get any further, I can't help but wonder if it was easy for you to connect these people to their parahuman online profiles or not. It, it, I, I can I can say s- some were like I, I grasped Kenzie and Ashley pretty quickly, obviously, but um, and Ashley probably only because I was in the threads and was sort of immersed in other people's figuring things out. But <laughs> it was harder for me to put together the other characters. Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, like I didn't know. Tristan at first but we had his name like we had his full name mm-hmm. from the Moonsong chapter um, Chris is described from the beginning in the prologue as a similar age to Kenzie so when there was someone there that was described as similar to Kenzie I immediately thought that was Chris and then Rain was just kind of process elimination from that point yeah um, yeah. so I, did, I, I connected them pretty fast okay but... I kind of figured you would because you've st- studied it essentially at this point mm-hmm. yeah so we get some small but important info here that this is the second to the last session uh, so there's a little bit of a ticking clock element victoria is being brought in because her experiences make her quote exceptionally well equipped to address the topics that came up last session 
which we're which is still a mystery to us yeah, yeah. exactly yeah right which we're gradually going to get what that is so victoria introduces herself and her family and the past interaction of new wave with damsel distress comes up um i do wonder how this parsed for you because people were theorizing that mangled wings was damsel of distress pretty much from her first chapter in the prologue uh, mainly the main piece of evidence being her arms were these elongated claw things that bones made uh, to help her with her power that victoria thinks of um of ashley as dangerous unpredictable and prone to self-sabotage yeah that's interesting i did not see this character coming at all um i'd be lying if i remembered if i said i remembered much of anything about damsel in distress like in general um i remember she was a slaughterhouse nine cape that got killed in boston and then she was cloned as part of slaughterhouse a lot and I remember that there were some clones that didn't die. Like, I think, in fact, there was a part where Taylor grabs two damsel of distress clones that are hanging out together. Um, and I guess presumably Ashley is one of them. I had completely forgotten about the elongated fingers. Um, so I guess mangle wings makes sense in that context. But no, I did not. I did not put that together at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am very interested in the idea of one of our main characters being a clone, though. Um, I think we talked about both in the Echidna and the Slaughterhouse a lot sections of the book that the treatments of the, the clones was interesting. They kind of served as fodder in some sense. These were people that were okay for our characters to kill because they were just they were just clones. Um, and now we're specifically treating them as a, a living, breathing person. Right. Yeah, that was the main the main thing that I wish we got out of the, the Witness chapter was at least one chapter from the perspective of one of these otherwise disposable and inhuman clones. Um, whether, like you said, whether it be a bone saw clone or a kidna clone, or even like a Nilbog creation, it, it, it's cool to see inside the heads of these not quite people, people. Yeah, absolutely. And then Victoria goes on to think she was a particular brand or species of Cape who somehow rose up when everything else was sinking it almost made a degree of sense then that in following with that pattern, she'd risen up from the grave at the same time the entire world was plunged into chaos. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's poetic, Victoria. Yep. Well done. So Victoria perceives that Ashley is easily offended when she accidentally says that Ashley was nothing more than a pin in a board, and then she quickly saves the fumble when she sees Ashley's reaction. Uh, this is an, another demonstration of how keen Victoria is. Yeah, she's so observant, right? Like, mm -hmm. this reminded me of, we just read The Secret Place for our book club last month, and it reminded me of the detective's ability to pick up on those, like, minute facial expression ticks and changes. Mm -hmm. Like, she's very perceptive. Yeah. Um, still, though, <laughs> Ashley says, you brought her here to change our minds. And then that brings us back to the coffee shop where Jessica tells us what's going on. She did too good a job at making sure these people would get along and support each other. So now they want to stay together and form a team of heroes. It sounds like, and Jessica does not like it. And Scott doesn't like it either. <laughs> like I, I love all these characters and I think they're interesting and I like how they play. So from a narrative perspective, yeah, I want these, this team to happen because these are fascinating characters and there's ripe for conflict, but we know that these are damaged people. These are kind of, we can kind of call them the rejects of society, right? Like I call them the Isle of Misfit toys type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, these are, these are all damaged, hurt people and they've come together and that's great. But 
uh, <laughs> I don't, there's a whole lot of issues that could arise here. And I think we're going to, we're going to tackle that as we jump into the therapy session chapter. But, yeah. um, the, the, the time jump structure is what allows this, um, chapter to end on this bang, like this, like, like they want to become a team and that's not good. And I think that's what doing this manipulation of the time allows Wildbo to do is it like kind of it's kind of like a have your cake and eat it too moment, right? Because you get to get to pace this out and, and leave the suspense and mystery and you get to land the chapter on the moment you want to land it on, but still carry the, the story forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we do carry it forward into a 10,000 word therapy session chapter, um, which is, like we were saying before, very unique. And to, to preface, um, conversation, like I said earlier, conversations are the most difficult material to summarize because, you know, in theory, every statement made in a conversation leads into the next. And if you just skip things, then you break the logical chain. Um, that being said, we're going to have to skip things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since we're almost at two hours already and we've got three whole chapters to do, Matt. Yeah, I will be fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so Yamada opens up by letting them know that she doesn't think it's a good idea for them to form a team. Victoria chimes in that they may not appreciate how quickly things can snowball and unresolved bad stuff catches up with you. Yeah, this is a, a fairly reasoned response, I think. Uh, this is literally w- what happens to Taylor in that one and a half million word book we just finished reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and this is where I want to stop and, and, and talk about, like, the the thing, and maybe, like, there there is this really interesting idea that I am an adult man looking at this and looking at children trying to come together to form a team, and I see their reasoning and their motives a lot of the times as, as kind of childish, in a way, mm-hmm. um, like, which makes sense, they're, they're children, they're kids, um, well, some of them, but it feels like they're treating this as kind of a a game. And I think every, we see kind of every time Victoria offers completely valid objections to the idea of starting a team, their response to that is basically just like, nah, and I think that's like, that's what kind of slowly puts me towards the side of Yamada and this whole thing. And Mm -hmm. I I think I, I wonder how different if I was 15 reading this book, if I was even, 18 reading this book if i would quite be on that side yeah i think you're right i mean they've all written their bottom lines saying in conclusion we need to be a superhero team and now they're just gonna say whatever they need to say to get to that bottom line yeah Um, especially tristan's like i'm not worried about money and she's like no but here's the serious things you need to worry about with money it's like now i was on a team that collected money once so i completely understand it right well (laughs) well yeah yeah we'll go through each of them and see how they're all kind of like this or not 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 all of them but most of them yeah so it's interesting to watch uh sveta is actually the one who first is gently pushing back against our protagonist and and we're not used to our darling sveta being you know quote-unquote wrong or at least on the opposite side of our of our main character sveta even says this out loud like she's not comfortable being in this situation yeah, and I think that's the thing that's so crushing about all this is I get Sveta's motivation. I understand her reasoning, and Victoria does too. For Sveta, this is finally a chance to go out there and do something, a fresh start for her, not just the world. She gets one. And I think there's so much of Victoria's own wants and needs reflected in what Sveta is saying. 
but also I, I think Victoria kind of knows what she's talking about. So maybe listen to her. Yeah. Right. So yeah, they all have their own reasons for wanting to be part of the team and for wanting it now. Sveta wants some kind of independence and to catch up on the life she's missed. Yeah. Which again, makes, makes a lot of sense. And I like how much later in the chapter, Vicky points to the fact that each person wanting something different from the team is actually a detriment to the team because it means they own they each have their own unique needs and wants that could end up contradicting each other in the future also yeah. it doesn't help that they're just like all lying to each other right yeah so victoria pivots to practical objections like you said it's really hard to make money you have to spend so much time on pr etc she goes on to give a case as to why they should listen to her She's a cape geek of a higher tier. She's been living the cape life, sort of, since she was born. She's a student of capes. Yeah, and this is, like like we said, Tristan refutes her arguments by just saying, money's not going to be a problem. It's not fine. Yeah. It's fine. Um, but then we get some straw manning here. She doesn't, like, she doesn't shift to defending her credentials. She's forced to when Ashley attacks them. Ashley's mm-hmm. not attacking her argument. Her she's attacking her qualifications for even giving that argument. Right. And like, so they're not even debating her on principle anymore. Yeah. It's just an ad, ad hominem. Yeah. Yeah. So Yamada points out that Tristan keeps looking at her, checking for disapproval. And he admits that he ought to self moderate. Um, and he says enough that Victoria puts together that he's Capricorn. Yeah. Uh, I like this because as, as much as we're talking about how um, these kids are are not handling this argument very well you can also tell that they've been through therapy and like the the idea that he recognizes this and is able to recognize it but not correct it um is is fitting um it makes sense like capricorn's on team reach and he loves goats i wonder if that means byron like is really into fish yeah i guess we'll guess we'll see (laughs) so rain said i'm less proud and more amazed by the fact that you're thought process went from i need to try to win social interactions less to this is a meta scenario i can win in what 20 words and then uh, tristan says what did i and chris says and the fact he used so many words to say he was going to shut up um so it's funny because uh, <laughs> we basically get a lot of insight into uh, in, into into tristan's character as someone who kind of loves to talk loves to be the center of attention and even when he says he's going to shut up, he needs a whole bunch of words to say it and still show that he's winning by doing so. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then, and then we see rain kind of be a little bit, a little bit barbed, but in kind of a funny way. And then Chris be more barbed in kind of in a less funny way. Yeah. yeah. So it was just a little bit of character stuff there. And Yamada indeed points out that Chris is a mean spirited shit, but she says it in a much more therapy kind of way. Yeah. Right. But the, I mean, it is it, like Chris, Chris has been a mean-spirited shit so far. Everything he says is is a sarcastic dig. And I love how Yamada puts this. is like, you have a tendency, which has been remarked on by others in the past, to think that a clever put-down is a good thing because it's clever, when most people will take away the fact that it was a put-down. And that, right. is, that is a statement that is very true um, to life as well. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. people do that. There are people that do that all the time that think, oh, I have a really funny joke dig off of this, and I think it's funny. And the funny part is not what the person being made fun of focuses on. Right. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Can't take a joke. You say, as you say something horribly mean. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, a lot of Yamada's arguments seem to be centered around the fact that they don't have to rush into this. There's no time pressure. She wants them to take their time. 
But Rain says that there is a kind of time pressure. There are people after him, his cluster. Um, yeah. And just a note here that Tristan indeed can't actually shut his mouth and he still talks way more than anyone else, even after he said he would shut up. Yeah, he breaks his vow of silence like 30 seconds after making it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Victoria tells um, of five that he fought, that, that she fought Snag, who they figure out is one of his cluster mates. We learn what Rain's powers are. He says he has a blaster power that makes things vulnerable to breakage, a tinker power that makes extra arms and hands. He can catch his balance or secure footing more easily, and he has a guilt-in-doubt area effect. Yeah, and he really underplays these powers here, Matt. Um, he makes it seem like he's not all that powerful. Oh, I just have this blaster power that makes breaking things easier. That's not that useful. Bullshit. Like, bullshit. Like, first of all, we have a pretty good indication that every other person in his cluster is pretty strong. Like, um, we have saw, saw the reports of what the Claw Lady was capable of doing to people. Mm-hmm. She fought against Snag. So why is he just the only one that's not actually that capable? I, I don't believe this for a second. Yeah, makes sense. So Kenzie talks about trying to be a hero, and we see some of these folks have different levels of commitment to remaining good guys. <laughs> Ashley is obviously more about just wanting to be feared and explicitly wants to learn how heroes operate so that she can be feared better when she goes back to being a villain. Yes, by all means, make this team. This sounds like a great fucking idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like Ashley's kind of a reverse tailor here then, right? Like she's <laughs> yeah. infiltrating the heroes. And then it's going to go back to the villains and report on them. Right. She's much more honest than Taylor, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we also learn that, yes, Ashley did die. Uh, and we can safely conclude, like you said, that she is a Slaughterhouse-A-Lot clone. Yeah. Like I said, the implications of this are so fascinating. Like, we know that Bonesaw didn't make them perfectly. They, she had to substitute memories in order to track personalities. So this Ashley is indeed different from the original one yeah i'm wondering how that's going to play out through her character and through her arc right i mean we i think i believe we saw bonesaw uh sort of constructing iterations of ashley and and having a tea party with one of them and then and then euthanizing it Uh, i think that was i think that was damsel oh yeah i think you're right yeah so yeah i mean it seems a lot like her with the sort of over-the-top villain uh persona um so we learned that Tristan is a case 70. Him and his brother share the same body in some sense, each having similar powers. Byron is in fact right here watching through Tristan's eyes. Matt, he's in the sunken place. Have you seen Get Out yet? No, I haven't. Damn it, that doesn't make any sense to you. No, I, I figured okay. it was a reference to something though. Yeah. <laughs> um, this does, however, make the interactions uh, back in the prologue make a lot more sense though, right? Tristan uh, was chatting with Moonsong, got in a fight. And then later, Byron came in, and they had their friendly chat, because they're completely different people. And we also know that it was Byron that went to the uh, merchandise dealer and ordered the hit. But we also know that Tristan could see it happen, mm-hmm. which makes you think, hmm. Like, because we know these guys, the person in control has charge of releasing control, right? So if you're worried about how your other half is um, behaving... What's one way to make sure they don't take take full control of the body and never give it back? Yeah. What's one way to do that? Put a Maybe. dead man switch type situation. Interesting. Yeah. 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 
We also learn absolutely nothing about Chris throughout any of this. He doesn't share a thing. He says specifically it took him three sessions to share with everyone else. And this is session number one for Victoria. So we get nothing on him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So Victoria ends up saying that she doesn't think uh, that they shouldn't make a team, but also doesn't think that they should. Yeah, real uh, real strong stance there, Victoria. <laughs> yeah. Yamada at least wants them to wait six months to a year. Um, and Kenzie is really upset at this point uh, at the thought of being left out of things as they move forward. She says, there have only really ever been three times in my life where people acted like they wanted me around not counting the adults who get paid to look after me. Sorry, Mrs. Yamada. The first one, it led to my trigger, so you can imagine how well that went. The second one was the couple of months I spent with the Baltimore wards, and they don't want anything to do with me anymore. The third is here, these guys. Yeah, so this is heartbreaking for Kenzie, but also um, troubling. <laughs> yeah. Every time you've been around people that like you, it's ended badly. Yeah. First time you had such a traumatic experience that you triggered this time. What's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's man, like the, 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 the breadcrumbs are being laid for being deeply concerned with Kenzie. And I cannot wait to learn more about this girl. Yeah. I can't help but feel like I understand that Yamada is in some sense obligated not to share things that she's not supposed to share, but (laughs) yeah, man, things would be easier if she was like, look, these people are all like really screwed up. Let me just lay it all out for you. I know. Yeah. Um, but oh well, I guess, I guess Victoria will have to find out the hard way. Yeah. Um, then we, so, so it, it wraps up with Victoria offering to be their coach. Yeah. So this is how we finish the chapter. So this is what I want to talk to you about what Yamada has done here, because <laughs> Yamada says the beginning of this whole thing, I screwed up. These people want to be a team, and in my professional opinion, that is a bad call. That's not good. And she brings in Victoria to convince them not to be a team. So here's my question for you, Matt. Did she just fuck up again? Or was this what she really wanted all along? Because Yamada is not stupid, and she knows Victoria is searching for a place to belong, is searching for a group of people with which she can feel at home and have identity and have purpose. And like this, this situation that Yamada has just put her in is like exactly what she was looking for. And I find it very hard to believe that she didn't on some level know that. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of go back and forth on, on the answer to this because on the one, on the one hand, I feel like there's no good option. Like the thing about capes and and, and Yamada knows this very well is that they're going to go do cape stuff. Like she can't fix them and then just have it be like, okay, now rain is going to go get a job as a, as, as a clerk and, and Victoria is going to like, they're all going to go do cape stuff. They're compelled to, so it does, it, it is actually a good idea for her to point them in a direction where they're going to do heroic cape stuff in a supportive mm-hmm. environment where they're not going to like get triggered by something that happens and kill 40 people. Um, so it, it, it does seem like this is a bit of a powder keg where putting them all together on the one hand, they do know how to support each other. On the other hand, they're all extremely 
unusually volatile even for capes. So adding Victoria to this mix with her being basically almost like a surrogate therapist in, in the sense that she's absorbed a lot of these lessons from, from, from Yamada seems like a good move. But that's the thing. I, I almost think we're going to have to see how things end up playing out. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, unfortunately, we're going to have to judge the quality of this decision by its <laughs> by its outcome, which yeah. which is one of the which actually tells us a lot. It tells us, yeah, then that implies that you can't really judge her too harshly because you can't possibly know now whether it was a good call or a bad call. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it, my my opinion on this whole thing is, I think I think Jessica legitimately made a mistake in putting these people together um or at least in putting them together in the way that 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 they wanted to become a team and victoria was damage control and i think i think jessica would have been satisfied with either outcome of victoria successfully manages to talk them out of this or outcome victoria uh joins them and i think like once once she's in the situation she's in like you said there's no there's no good solution to the mistake she made there's just the damage control solutions and so i think i think she was because we don't see her like react at all to offering to be a coach like not in any kind of like oh shit kind of way yeah. so um I, I don't think she's altogether completely surprised that this is the outcome yeah i agree with that so yeah then we move on to 2.7 and we've we've skipped some time at the therapy session. Now Victoria is talking about how she felt energized after her time spent at the hospital helping kids. Yeah, and I think this is a pretty important and dramatic shift in the relationship between the group. Um, the last chapter we saw Victoria, like, she gave out some personal info, but it was very guarded with it. Like, her her role here was kind of lecturing. It was kind of pseudo-therapist um saying things that y- Yamada couldn't because she was handling the conversation or she was refereeing the conversation rather she was kind of positioned implicitly as like superior in the conversation and talking down to them um and that makes sense because well that like that was that was her original goal talk them out of this um but once Victoria has offered up the idea of being their coach their whole dynamic kind of shifts and suddenly we open up on Victoria not only telling them about that moment where she felt energized, but going into the detail of those non-thoughts, those zoning out moments that she's had. Like, the relationship between this team has shifted. They are a team now. And I think this opening reflects that. Yeah, and she's really opening up to them quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. So Tristan admits that he no longer has a release valve, like, like, for example, Victoria was describing with taking kids flying. He can't go be a wild and crazy guy because almost all those behaviors would involve Byron. Hey, Matt. Uh-huh. Imagine every time you have sex, your brother is silently watching you, unable <laughs> to scream or make any noise or look away. <laughs> Enjoy never having sex again. <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. You're welcome. All right. So they head out of the room and exchange numbers as Tristan stays behind and lets Byron talk to Yamada. And we see that Byron actually looks different. Byron's hair is slicked back. He looks kind of uncomfortable. He's dressed in dark colors. And uh, he glances over and checks out Victoria before she leaves. Oh, boy. I hope uh, that that comes to some interesting conflict. I'm sure it will. (laughs) 
So Ashley leaves with some guardians, and Victoria voices her reservations about Ashley to to Sveta. Sveta emphasizes the importance of giving people second chances. And here we get the <laughs> capstone of the arc, in my opinion. Yeah. I believe in second chances, not necessarily in every circumstance, though, which seems like the direction a lot of people are going. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm kind of glad we see this. Like, this is... This is confirmation of what we've been talking about, that in this conflict between um, fresh start and remember the past, Victoria kind of positions herself in the exact middle, right? Like, she's Mm -hmm. not full fresh start, but she's not full let's stay rooted in the past. She's She picks and chews, and she sits in the middle of that, and I think that's a very interesting thing to show here. Yeah, yeah. So we're still being pretty cagey about the specifics of Kenzie's power. She, she says, uh, I can make cameras in inconveniently big boxes. My best <laughs> stuff is inconveniently big box-shaped cameras. And then she goes on to say, terminals, tech, and computers big enough, they're hard to move around. Like turrets, but I can't really make good weapons or defensive things. Yeah, it's 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 information. We understand what she can do. Cameras seems to be her thing. Mm. Um, but... There's no real indication of why this would be something that would make her so scary. Yeah, right. It's it's there's a lot of like perplexing stuff with her. We're just like, okay, I still don't get it. And, and yeah, yeah. There's there, there also seems to be this thread of like, oh shocks, my power sucks among among a lot of these kids um, right. who are all known liars. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We pointed it out with Rain, and we see it here with Kenzie again. Like they seem to be downplaying. Like we know that the wards really wanted Kenzie, right? They wanted mm-hmm. her bad. So there's something to do with this power that she's not explaining that makes it very, very useful. Yeah, right. And scary, apparently. Yeah. Yes. So Victoria realizes that all these people live a vast distance apart from each other, which makes coordinating coordinating their activities difficult. Yep. And they um, don't seem to mind really. They're just like, eh, we can deal with yeah, that. We'll figure it out. Which is we'll, again which is yeah. again a proof that they have not really thought this thing fully through. That's definitely true that they're just so blase about it. But also Kenzie's just like, Yeah, I can probably whip up a teleporter. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay, Kenzie, yeah. That's wait, wait, what? That's that's normal. Yeah. That's um, just... <laughs> so Victoria at this point, um so, so yeah, we've dropped a few hints. Um that Rain is hanging out with some girl named Aaron, who he has a crush on but isn't making any moves on. We saw those hints as far back as the prologue, actually. Yeah, and there's, like, like with anyone else in this group, he's not being completely honest with you. There's something more to this relationship that he's not letting on. Um, and I'm willing to bet just about anything that it has something to do with his trigger event and why the rest of his cluster seems to be after him. Which is interesting because it doesn't... We haven't seen any confirmation that the rest of the cluster is attacking each other. Yeah. It seems that they're specifically after him. And that is a wrinkle in the whole kiss kill thing that I find really interesting. Yeah. Right. We, we have no real hint as to why it's, it's not like they're just implied to be, you know, zombies who just need to kill him. There's gotta be some reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. So as they're walking, some drunk shouts at Sveta, hey, you're weird, he called out. You're freaky. Um, but the posse don't make a big deal out of it. They just move on. Yeah, and I think this is uh, this is a reflection of just how good Sveta is doing these days. Or at least, at least that she's like very good at putting up a front. 
Um, she doesn't lose control. She doesn't even react. And she has to stop Victoria, too. Like, Victoria, who is very good at not knowing when to escalate things, almost turns around and says something. But Sveta stops her. Mm-hmm. And she's filled with such optimism here, too. Yeah, like, yeah. she says, hey, people used to run from me. Now they just make fun of me. It'll get better. I believe that. And I think this is one of the big thematic points we're going to see in this book. Um, the, the idea of optimism, the idea of things getting better. Because in Worm, everything that was bad just got worse. The Embringers were out there and they're, they're slow. They were slowly but inevitably just wearing people down. Like there was this idea that they were going to eventually just like destroy enough cities to to concentrate people enough that every time they were going to lose a little more there was this ticking clock that signaled the end of the world there was this idea that trauma just begets more trauma worse things just get worse and it it's like as reliable as entropy itself which was the thing that the, the worms were trying to stop <laughs> from happening but in this story it seems in the first part we're focusing on the opposite they were this idea that things can and will get better. They're going to get worse first, obviously. It wouldn't be much of a story if nothing bad happened. But optimism is new and different. Like repair, like regrowth, like renewal. Things will get better. And that is very different from the, the previous book. And it's it's very encouraging. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, it makes... You know, I don't think we're going to see a tonal facsimile of Worm here. I think it's going to be. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that ties into our, our arc name so far. The the, the thir- three arcs we know all deal with the sun because the future, Matt, is bright. Yeah. But the but sun also, is also dangerous, though. Yeah, but also things are going to be really bad for a while. <laughs> yeah, right. Suns suns can be destructive as well, so. So this girl, Erin, pulls up in her van, and Victoria thinks that she looks like she ought to be a model. Not just ought to be a model, Matt. She goes into this long, long description of Erin and yeah. says she has to be a model. Yeah, it would be is, unfair if she's yeah, not a model. Yeah, right. It's very interesting. And and after worshipping Erin uh, a little bit, Erin says, You look a lot like Glory Girl. I am, I said. I was. Huh, Erin said. That's really cool. Maybe I'll see you around. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, not many people recognize Victoria right away, right? Especially yeah. when she's not like in the Glory Girl like costume. Like she's just in normal clothes here. Yeah. Something's going on with this girl, Matt. I don't know what it is. I don't like it. Yeah, I know. So later, Victoria looks out over the city feeling melancholy and nagging restlessness. She goes for a flight heading for one of the areas she'd considered for the group's work. Everything is graffitied in the wake of the labor dispute. A cape shows up near her when she stops to read some of the graffiti. Spiky plate armor. He hands her a note. We saw you fly in. We discussed. We called some people. This is our message to you. And then he. And then as she takes the note, he reaches for her throat, and she just knocks him aside with her power, then yeah. casually strolls along in view of nearby people to show she wasn't bothered by it. And she reads the note, and it says, Turn around and fly home, glory hole. Signed. PT. It's Tattletail. Yay. Still using that nickname. Yeah. <laughs> I like that we've actually still yet two arcs into this book um interact or meet with Tattletail, but but her presence is still felt everywhere. Like it was felt in the first arc, it's felt here, it was even felt in the prologue a little bit. 
And I'm curious about this. So it's clear that in reaction to or possibly because of the labor disputes with the construction workers, crews under control of Tattletail or under command of Tattletail have taken over this town. Uh, and I'm curious if you think this means that she had a hand in or possibly instigated this conflict for some reason. I, I mean, I think she probably had a hand in it based on largely on kind of what we see in the interlude that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't really, I don't really feel like I know enough to speculate intelligently about what she's trying to do. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So save that for Matt's speculations, which it's not a thing. We need... What what it starts with M? Matt's mysteries. Matt's, I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's go on. So she sees the name of the area uh, is Cedar Points Apartments, but the cedar has been crossed out and replaced with Hollow. Huh. So this rebranding as Hollow Point has been uh, performed throughout the area. That's really clever. I love it. I love <laughs> Hollow Point. So uh, it says. I stopped in front of another piece of graffiti. It wasn't crowded. Sorry, it wasn't crowded in with anything else, so it stood out, almost a piece of art, in how it was spelled out on a ruined wall, half topped, half toppled. This is how things are now. I had the paper in my hand. I had my doubts, but the nagging feeling ceased being nagging and became acutely clear as I looked at the statement. Fuck that, I said. Yeah, what a way to end it. What yeah. a way to end it. This is this goes right along with what Sveta was saying earlier in the chapter, right? I think this is a watershed moment for Victoria. I I, I really do. I think this is when she decides to become to to, to be the person that's going to <clears throat> ward off <laughs> this kind of trouble. Um, with the idea that things are going to get better, and she is going to make sure that 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 happens. Things are going to get worse. This is how things are now. Fuck that. I yeah. I reject that out of hand. Yeah. No. Not on this my is watch. Not, yeah, this is not how they are. They are going to get better, and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. This very cool statement of her heroic nature. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that was that was the arc proper. Now we get our interlude chapter, 2.x, and we've got Crystal Clear now working with Foresight using his power to assist with the vetting of people getting off the train at the portal. He's working with Relay, who we've already met. Relay sends him telepathic impressions of what to look for. Crystal Clear can get a sense of where people's focus is by the nature of the of the distortions of light around their heads. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to point out here that Wildbow specifically had Crystal Clear explain how hard it was to describe his power in the last arc, because there's like no words to describe um, what he sees. And then one arc later, he makes a point of view where he has to write words to describe what he sees. And it's just like, again and again, we see Wildbow just like, I'm going to challenge myself today and have to do this. And yeah. he, he, he freaking pulls it off, man. I know. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Oh, I accidentally said something would be really hard to explain. So now I have to I guess explain I'll it. have to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Crystal Clear thinks about how it took him a long time to get through the quarantine because he had been open about having powers. His personal weakness, as he sees it, is a kind of blindness to things that other people put together easily. His power is likewise difficult to interpret. It's almost like his shard is intentionally not helping him interpret it. It's like, here, colors mean things. Uh, You figure it out. Um, And he actually spaces out thinking about this and really has to kind of get him back on task. 
Yeah, and I think we learn a little bit later that he's a post gold morning trigger, right? Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that we should we should catalog call these out and catalog their behavior differently. And this this seems something that's a little different. The 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 shard here is less symbiotic. Um, it's not helping him. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what to make of that. Exactly. It could it could have specific to do with his the trauma that caused his trigger event. Um, it could just be how this shard is behaving differently. We don't know yet, but it's worth it's worth calling out at least. Yeah, yeah. So the relief shows up, uh, Big Picture and Ratcatcher. Big Picture, whose power is the ability to split his consciousness and accelerate the various threads, uh, oh and the power that I want specifically and have always wanted, uh, and Ratcatcher, who has a pronounced lisp and probably looks somehow horrifying, we're not told how because Crystal Clear can't really see her. Ratcatcher apparently sees small things. Matt, can you imagine how quickly we could do prep for this podcast if we had big pictures power? <laughs> yeah, well, he only has so, one set of hands, though. So, Well, that's true. There's got to yeah, be a no, tinker device for that. It, it would be amazing. It would be amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. How about this? I'll be big picture and you can be Ratcatcher. Oh, thanks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta let's, see the small things, man. Let's see how that would be. All useful. the small things. Oh, that's true. I mean, all the it's small impor- things. It's important to see the details when you're doing analysis. So. It's Blink One Eighty Two song. Oh, that's. I'm that's glad funny. I didn't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I like this interaction. Crystal Clear says, "Feels like we should be out there, not here." Big Picture says, "I know that feeling. It's often a trap." Crystal Clear turned toward Big Picture. I joined the military before I got powers. I was thinking something similar when I did. That things at home were shit, but I was needed out there. We didn't fix anything out there, and we came home to find things were worse. Um, I just I just like that. Um, yeah, that's really great. Um, yeah. I, I'm trying to... I, like, I tried really hard to rope that into Victoria. <laughs> um, and, like... And I guess if you want to get, like really if you want to stretch this out really really far probably too far victoria has now taken it upon herself to help fix other people when she needs some fixing still mm-hmm. um but that's yeah. a stretch well it, uh, i don't know yeah i mean her own house is not in order she's she's yeah that she's trying to take take uh, splinters out of other people's eyes and uh she's got some problems with her with her own so anyway i think there's something there Okay. So Ratcatcher catches a woman smuggling something and orders a cavity search, um, which which is made funny by the fact that the other the other capes there are a lot. You're not me- or like you're not messing around again, are you, Ratcatcher? Um, so <laughs> yeah, that's good. I guess Matt, you're just gonna whistle past the part where Crystal Clear just like casually pulls a crystal out of his eye and then replaces it by growing another crystal that comes shooting out of his brain through his eye socket. And that's just normal. Yeah, and it doesn't mention it hurting, but it mentions that it has a sensation, which is somehow even creepier. Yeah. It's so like he, he carefully positioned it so that it wasn't like sharp against the inside of his eyelid. Yeah, yeah. Like, the guys in the Discord described it as like the pleasure you get from popping a pimple. <laughs> and that's weird. <laughs> yeah, okay. I suppose <laughs> I can map that onto this. Sure. So sure. Hold on, let me just... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, be processing that all night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Enjoy so Chris, those dreams. Yeah. 
So Crystal Clear is called in uh, to a meeting with Weld, who's arriving with a diplomatic envoy. Weld at first mistakes him for a K-53, but Crystal Clear awkwardly corrects him. Oh, I'm not. I, I can go from this to not this, Crystal Clear said. So what's your interpretation of that? He can he can make the crystals on his head go away if he wants to? Yeah, I think he can just either pull them out or, yeah. yeah so like would that. his sight return to normal? I think it does return to normal. I, I believe that there's an explicit bit of evidence that his sight returns to normal when he's not using his crystals, but then he but then he doesn't have his power. So Gotcha, gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I'm not 100% on that, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so shortly after this, Relay has an awkward has to awkwardly let Crystal Clear know that number one, Ratcatcher likes him or, or you know approves of him, yeah. and number two, she's older than she sounds, so he shouldn't say "nice kid." Yeah, um, and the thing I like most about this is how it gets him to think about how complicated being around other thinkers are. Uh, he says he hates being out of the loop, and that makes sense; hence his his power. But his power does have limitations, and, and, and while there are other thinkers around, he knows they're picking up on stuff that he isn't. And it's this fascinating look into his psyche, how that frustrates him. And I appreciate how the text is written to kind of constantly reinforce this idea that he really has no idea about any of the specifics of people. Like, we saw that example way back in uh, the second chapter. But here, like, he's he's guessing so much. And, like, uh, there's this one line when, when Relay says, sorry, and... He says he'd apparently picked up on something and he just has no idea whether he picked up on something. He's just like guessing at these human interactions because he, he can't see them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, there, there are many beats of him being a little bit off and, and, and being frustrated by it, too. He's he, he's aware that he's off. He's not yeah. he's not oblivious to it. And that makes it even more frustrating to him. Well, it's like when they say the uh, person in question has red jacket, pointy shoes, mm-hmm. and like he can't do anything with the first part of that information. Like he doesn't see color that way. Yeah, right. I almost w- wanted to read into like the first couple lines of this chapter where, where like he he tells them, um, he tells them who to look for, and then the answer that comes back over the radio is unintelligible, and like from a literary point of view, it's like he can speak but he can't understand other people right? i think i think that's if not intentional it's very fitting it thematically yeah, so yeah. yeah it works very well so the leaders of earth you know we had somebody who could have told us how to pronounce this correctly earth <laughs> cheat earth chite arrive uh earth and they, sea earth sea that's right earth sea <laughs> and they're abraham abrahamic theocrats which lets us know a little bit about this world, namely that the timeline diverged uh, somewhere in the last few thousand years and likely much more recently because they speak English. Yeah, but this is very much coded to say expect trouble, right? Mm-hmm. I think not there's anything wrong with, with religion or religious groups, but this is one that is specifically seems to be coded like old, 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 hardcore-esque religion. Right. I mean, theocrat itself, I think, is is meant to have negative connotations. Absolutely. Um, Sierra is in this meeting room. Um, Important high-powered businesswoman now with uh, supposed ties to organized crime. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) Um, She was born in organized crime. Yeah, right. Um, As an aside, uh, how weird is it that Tattletail would keep this this particular, you know, young and experienced person in place rather than finding some kind of 
experienced CEO to take over this difficult job. Almost <laughs> like there's some other reason why Telltale would prefer to have like a little sister figure around. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I hadn't actually thought of it. Like, Tattletale, part of her trauma is sticking with her family. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, Sierra is one of those people. Yeah, yeah. So how much do you want to bet in this meeting that Sierra is wearing an earpiece and Tattletale is on the other end of it and is relaying stuff to her and, and giving her hints and telling her stuff to say? I think I think we can be pretty sure that that's the case, actually. Like, like, yeah what's above 100% because that's, that's where I'm at 104% well that doesn't make any logical sense probability wise <laughs> I think I think you're right <laughs> yeah because uh, we, do, we do know that she has an earpiece so oh we did uh, I forgot about that t- toward the end yeah uh, it, it, it's made a point of that um, Relay is like oh you didn't catch that crystal clear aren't you aren't you a fuck up crystal clear these bastards leave leave crystal clear alone i, I know i, I kind of i actually I, I think relay is actually a little bit hard on him because Relay doesn't have she, he didn't have to say oh you didn't catch that crystal clear you didn't, you didn't notice that <laughs> yeah huh? i guess it's not that crystal clear yeah huh maybe we shouldn't hire you um <laughs> so he actually at this point he has an intrusive thought stay put and stay silent and then he remembers his youth being raised by a woman who isn't his mother, his aunt, so he thinks, who tells him that his mother was ill. She used him for some kind of nefarious activity that he wasn't really aware that he was doing. And when the authorities caught up with him, uh, he learned that she merely stole him and used him. Why hadn't he seen it? This is Crystal Clear's driving pathology. Yeah, and it's what caused him to trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like every fucking trigger, Matt... <laughs> It's not designed to resolve his trauma or or solve the issues that brought about his trauma, but actually, like, feeds off of it and, and robs him of it even more. Because, like, Crystal Clear can see many things, but his power robs him of the ability to understand and interpret people, which is the very thing he needed to be able to do to see what was going on with his aunt. Yeah. And it's just like, fuck you, shards. You bastards. Yeah. yeah. So the meeting opens up with the theocrat mentioning war. Uh, Sierra pushes back, reminding him that the people of Bet have a lot of scary people in their midst. Which is just literally starting off a meeting by having the Gimmel side say, our button is bigger than yours. Which is yeah. great work. This is also a very tattletale way of responding to something. Yeah, which, you're absolutely right. Adds to what you were saying. So the theocrats have a lot of power here. They are mad about the deaths in the broken trigger, or at least they're using the event for political leverage. They want the the bet betians to to, <laughs> to be more in control of things. They want security. Yeah, and this is when we learn what the bargain was: the deal to get supplies from them. They gave Gimel supplies for nothing, for for promises, for words. That, that they would that things would be safe that there would be no violence that would spill over there which is really like a promise they can't keep like this world there's very little control in what goes on yeah right it's nobody's in charge yeah yeah so after the people from earth c leave <laughs> the people from earth bet uh continue <laughs> to argue uh weld tells the foresight capes that foresight is effectively a wards adjunct although discreetly he wants crystal clear and relay to act as covert operatives crystal clear 
lacks confidence in his ability to do this job, but he eventually concedes. I will. One question, though. Ask. If you have us doing this, what do you have advanced guard and the attendant doing? Oh, snap. So I like that because um, he's actually being perceptive here. Yeah. Yeah. He does pick up on that. But... So just so we're clear, Matt, just just so we 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 finish this this week's episode by by completing the circle. We started the arc with Chevalier going on television and talking about how the wardens were different, and it wasn't the same old PRT. No, we've changed. Trust us. We're being honest with you. But <laughs> here at the end, we've learned that actually all the other groups in the areas are just basically secretly working for us and that and so they can do secret things that we can't do because it doesn't fit with our image so so they didn't fucking learn anything well i mean they're definitely not being the image of what taylor would have had them be <laughs> i think that's fair to say yes but also, I don't know. I, I I'm actually reserving judgment on what the wardens are 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 up to and and about at this point. Because um, for all we know, you know, if we were in these meetings with Chevalier, this would all be completely prudent and, and make sense. Although yeah, I'm, we... I'm sure there's good reasons for all of it, but like there there is. And and I'm not saying that the solution is to have a PRT that or or a wardens that never lies and never hides information. But this is there is secret missions going on, covert teams that have connections to one team but are not are not public connections to that team. It's just really shady shit. And I think it's very purposeful that we start the arc with a plea for people to not consider us just like the old thing and we see at the very end of the arc some actions that appear at least to be very much just like the old prt yeah i mean or or if if not just like the old prt then at least duplicitous and like you said um doing kind of hand in glove operations um so yeah that's i i i do think that's that's an awesome point that the arc opens up and ends with wardens um setting themselves up for one for one you know portrayal and behaving different way Mm -hmm. yeah i like that a lot all right yeah so that's the arc um let's do a little bit of name game i think all right let's do it so there's uh, we don't have time to do every single name although i think when we get into our new format we are going to try to do as many names as we really can reasonably do um i'll just pull out a few like relay seems you know think fairly clear that he's yeah it's pretty self-explanatory taking yeah. taking insights and then communicating them to others but it's just like the pure insight uh, i like crystal clear because like yeah yeah he sees everything made out of crystal but also like from inside his head things are far from clear like it's almost like he wishes that things were crystal clear but he's actually this like frustrated and confused person yeah um snag uh, was not was only you know briefly touched on this chapter, but I, I like that name a lot, and I like like his fighting style kind of relied on smashing through walls to grab her with his um, robot arms repeatedly, mm-hmm. so snagging her in other words. But also you can kind of view his emotional power as as a snag, like he like you you're snagged emotionally on his emotional hooks, um, 
And I also even like the idea that like he has kind of a his mover power kind of snags him on on different surfaces. So yeah. it's just I like how the the word is is almost like a, a elemental thing that informs his powers. Yeah, it must um, be harder to name cluster yeah triggers cuz they're not one thing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, you're right. Um uh, in fact, yeah, thinking of the few that we know of, they they have they usually have kind of strange names. Mm-hmm. Um, and then flare was uh, this one that you and I had talked about, and I think we were both much less certain about this than we often were about the worm uh, uh, arc titles. Yeah, this is the least certain I've been about an arc title that I can remember. <laughs> yeah, because it's like okay, it's a it's a sudden bright um, event. Um, you could you could say that the a broken trigger was was a flare. Uh-huh. Um, you could probably draw some other events in the chapter that could be called flares. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But also, so, you can use the the warning flare mm-hmm. meaning as this this whole thing is a a warning of bad things to come. Or sometimes you use a flare to call for help. Mm-hmm. So Victoria going to the rest of the group is responding to that that call for help. Uh, yeah, it's it's less clear. Um, I'm wondering if if anyone out there has any other ideas about the arc title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Share them know. with us, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Worm. Remember no, that we appreciate worm. worm. Wow! <laughs> Can't believe it. It's only the third one. <laughs> We've got Ward. Remember that we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice questions or thoughts on this week's episode yeah you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com because that's still the same or on twitter at gotwormpod i am going to be live tweeting um arc three tomorrow i will be just doing all of the released chapters and i think matt i don't think you and i have decided whether i'm going to continue that for the other arcs or not i i am of two minds about it and i not sure on the one hand i think it'd be very easy to just tweet it tweet whenever i read the chapter whenever it comes out but on the other hand if there's some people that follow me that haven't read the chapter yet i'd hate for them to see a tweet that spoils something for them like it was different when i was doing previously released stuff so i don't i don't know i don't know i had yeah, to make up my mind ask, on this eventually we can ask people what they would prefer i mean like like if if i saw oh there are scott tweets that means i need to get off twitter immediately and go read the latest <laughs> word chapter that's fair yeah um, yeah yeah because i'm definitely not going to be doing it like at midnight right when it's released yeah. that's not gonna happen no but i might read it but no i i don't i don't know i don't know well, well i will think about this and get back to you guys uh anyway our, my personal twitter is at scott daily 85 and matt's is at more earth yep at m there you go <laughs> i will be continuing our uh, sorry sorry i said that already um yeah so that's my part of the script done. All right. Your turn. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. Yeah, and I think, Matt, we're asking all of our listeners um, this week, even if you do not listen via YouTube, we are asking you to go on to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel anyway. It's uh, Daily Planet Films is the name of the channel. Um, that's just because YouTube has changed how their partnership program works. 
Um, and it requires a certain number of subscribers and number of hours listened. And we have the hours listened because we do three hour podcasts. Yeah. Um, but we don't have quite the number of subscribers. We know we have that number of people. It's just many of you, most of you do not listen via YouTube. So, yeah. um, even if you don't, if you have, if you have a YouTube account and just want to click that subscribe button, that'd be great. Um, it would help us some way in the future if we ever decide that we want to, do we want to take that partnership seriously or yeah whatever. But, yeah that would that would really help us yeah we'd we yeah, really would. appreciate that yeah um and as always you can find this all the other podcasts we do and all of our writing essays film and tv criticism and more at dailyplanetfilms.com this week on the made feed matt and i spent a couple hours looking forward to the movies of 2018 and talking about what looks good and what looks like jurassic world yeah. too so, so that's it was a fun podcast check that yeah. out on that made feed yeah yeah, that's fun. Uh, and if you like any of our our shows that we do and want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks this week to new Planeteers, All the Good, um, Jesse, James, and Zach, all at the $1 level, and Matthew at the $2. Uh, and, you know, um, yeah, so... Uh, also speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah, and as a heads up, we're going to be making some changes to our Patreon rewards coming up here pretty soon. Uh, one of the big things we're going to do is change the monthly Q&A sessions that's currently at the $20 level down to the $10 level to allow more people to access them and hopefully encourage some more questions. I think, Matt, we've been pretty woefully bad at scheduling those sessions so so hopefully opening this up to more people will encourage uh patrons to submit more questions and which in turn will encourage us to sit down and do those yeah um, so yeah um one thing we're also doing is is obviously then we're going to have to change what the 20 dollar level gets and we have an idea for that and we're going to be revealing it soon just not yet it's going to be really cool i think those of you that donate at the $20 level are really going to like it. So, so stay tuned for that. Yeah. And as for reviews, we don't have any this week, Matt. So, so here's the part where we beg you to go out to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Um, this really does help people find us. We have been told that people found us by looking through iTunes and, and found a podcast about worm and how excited they were. So these reviews do matter and it could help people find Ward as well. People that maybe read Worm a while ago and had no idea there's a new sequel out. This could help them find it. So we appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's it for the show this week. Next week, Scott and I finally catch up with the live chapters. We're going to cover every chapter of Arc 3 Glare that has been released by the time we record, which should be around 7, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, so, so like we said at the top, while you'll see our show format start to shift a little bit next week, uh, we won't get the full shift until we're only covering those two to three chapters a week. Um, so that'll be two weeks from now. It's coming, it's coming fast. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week on the next episode of We've Got Ward. <laughs>